The first person that they announce is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. Doot doot. Hmm? Oh, I was just making steamboat sounds. Go on. Oh, okay. <laughs> burr, burr. Hello everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days, and not so good old days, of World Championship Wrestling, series by series. I'm your host, Bob Moore, and I'm joined by the world's leading authority on the possibility of dropkicks from the top rope, Dr. Alec Bridgen. If you have questions, I don't have answers. (laughs) And the world's leading authority on the mental health effects of fabulous Freebirds matches, Dr. John Mullins. They go on forever. Maybe it's maybe it should be the uh, leading authority on the time-space dilation effects of uh, Freebirds matches, huh? Yes. He <laughs> <laughs> lose all sense of time and space. Tonight, we're taking a look at Starcade 91, Battle Bowl, the Lethal Lottery. Starcade 91 was held on December 29, 1991, in the Norfolk Scope in Norfolk, Virginia, in front of 7,600 fans with 140,000 pay-per-view buys. Now, interestingly, we were last at the Norfolk Scope in Starcade 88. At the time, we saw about the same number of pay-per-view buys, but had 10,000 fans in attendance. So, same building, less people. That's probably not a good sign. They probably got rid of chairs to save money. Tonight, 40 of the top WCW wrestlers will be picked at random to wrestle in a unique tag team format. Then the winners advance to the Battle Bowl, where only one man stands as the winner in Starcade 91, the Lethal Lottery. The show opens with a CG animated ring, which tilts up to reveal the WCW logo. WCW is on the cutting edge of technology here, at least in, like, five-second increments. I shudder to think of how long a five-second CG thing took to make in 1991. It was taken like six hours to render. <laughs> yeah. At least. <laughs> yeah, I think very generous. <laughs> I think, is this about the time the Abyss came out? Uh, sounds about, about right, yeah. I think it took them like six months to render the entire movie, so... <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> it was something unreal. I'd, ha- I'd have to look that up, but... Yeah, and I forget when Reboot came on for the first time. That was that was a little later in the 90s, I, I think. I think so, yeah. Man, I love that show. Not least because the hero, hero was named Bob. Mm-hmm. I mentioned there was two of them. Yeah, a rare case of a Bob as a hero instead of a evil, vile businessman. <laughs> That's true. We cut to wrestlers fighting in the background as the names of wrestlers participating in the Lethal Lottery flash on the screen. Except, oddly, Oz... Kevin Nash is listed, but he sadly never shows up on the show. Aww. More understandably, the Diamond Stud, Scott Hall, is listed, but he's injured, so someone else will be taking his place. It's kind of a weird coincidence that it's Kevin Nash and Scott Hall who are both listed but not actually participating, isn't it? That's true, yeah. It's two wrestlers, and it just happens to be one of the most famous WCW tag teams in the future, the Outsiders. 
Now, I, I will admit, though, the name scrolled by pretty fast, so it's entirely possible that I missed somebody else. The Starcade 91 logo spins onto the screen, and away we go. JR welcomes us to the show alongside co-host Tony Schiavone. They build up the Lethal Lottery concept. We'll have ten tag matches. I guess I've been a bad person. And the winning competitors will advance to the final Battle Bowl event, which is a 20-man battle royale of sorts, every man for himself. The competitors for the tag matches tonight will be decided by a quote-unquote random drawing. For Battle Bowl, we have two different rings set up next to each other. I'm going to call the one by the ramp ring one and the other one ring two if it matters tonight. So you're, to be clear, you're better at separating differentiating between the rings than you are with Doom members. I'm only good at separating between members of Doom or Russian assassins when JR <laughs> is good at it. That makes me sad. You wish the Russian assassins were on the show? I didn't say that. Okay, <laughs> okay good. <laughs> JR and Tony throw to Eric Bischoff with Missy Hyatt and tonight's commissioner, Magnum TA. Eric will be a very, very big name in WCW in time, and we'll see a lot of him in the future. Eric, in his best sleazy used car salesman voice, (laughs) tells us that they'll be drawing the names for the randomized tag teams. We get a shot of the stage as sparkly pyro goes off and a curtain slowly, slowly raises to reveal the wrestlers participating in tonight's event. It's kind of a cool display with them all lined up on platforms in front of the WCW logo. It'd be a cooler display if the WCW logo was actually, you know, centered. Yeah, I don't understand what's going on with that logo. It it might partially be the camera angle, but it definitely looks like it's off a little bit. It's not a full WCW logo. It's designed to sit... Look like it's sitting flat against the floor. It's literally the same thing that they used last year, I think, on the stage where it looked... Slightly weird, but fine, you know, with it set, set across the floor, but because, it, because it's got this, like, upward tilt. So the first W is cut off a little bit, but it looks like it sinks into the floor when you're on the floor. When it's suspended in the air, it looks like, no, you just took a katana or something and sliced off a good, like, quarter of the W. <laughs> yeah, you, some sort of rhombus or something. I don't quite get it. <laughs> Branding. Yeah. Eric introduces Missy Hyatt and Magnum TA, and Magnum reaches in to get Missy Hyatt the envelopes to select the first teams. I'm still not clear why he's only the commissioner for the night. Like, he's not regularly the commissioner, is what it sounds I guess, like? I guess not. So, our first match drawn tonight is Michael P.S. Hayes and Tracy Smothers versus Marcus Alexander Bagwell and Jimmy Jam Garvin. We're starting right out tonight with the Freebirds, John. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like starting on a high note, huh? Yeah, well, I just hope they don't fly away. <laughs> I'd think you, you would hope for them to fly away after last time. Yes, it's true. <laughs> it's kind of like if in Willy Wonka, instead of like walking through several rooms, then going on the boat ride, they just walked in right on the boat ride. Mm-hmm. You just go right to the boat. And also, right away... It seems pretty darn unlikely we'd get this particular matchup at random. Not impossible, but pretty unlikely. Tony points out that Garvin seems totally fine with fighting Hayes, while Hayes seems somewhat more reluctant. Smothers and Bagwell start with a stalling match, followed by Bagwell largely dominating as Smothers generally stalls by yelling at the crowd and accusing Bagwell of cheating. The crowd chants for the DDT, which is used by both Hayes and Garvin. (laughs) 
Be clearer, crowd. I noticed a weird green stain on the mat in Ring 1. Did they not clean these things, or is it just impossible to get what I assume might be Muta's mist out of the mats? Which is weird, because he hasn't been on a show in months, when I understand. Uh, yeah, I assume they... Maybe it's just that impossible. There's a weird spot after Bagwell hits a lot of moves where Smothers, unprompted, does this big theatrical fall. It kind of looks like he was taking a dropkick that Bagwell didn't throw or something, but it could just be him selling fear of the fired-up babyface. It's a weird spot, anyway. Smother stalling continues against Garvin, though we get a little more content with Hayes reluctant to support Smothers against his usual partner. Garvin atomic drops Smothers over the top rope, but there's no mention at all of over-the-top rope DQs tonight. Bagwell is tagged back in, and Hayes is finally tagged in, doing better, but once Smothers is back in, the match turns against his team again. There's a kind of nice bit of commentary as Tony points out that the teams have to be careful, or they might win early matches but go into Battle Bowl injured, and JR adds that teams in the early matches have an advantage as they'll have much more time to rest. That's true. Sure. The Freebirds eventually do get tagged in against each other, and the crowd gets really excited. They have a friendly competition, just grappling and trying roll-ups, nothing that risks injuring the other, and they do a lot of strutting and applauding for each other. Back to Smothers and Bagwell, and we get some actual action out of the two until Bagwell slugs Hayes, for unclear reasons, and an angry Hayes jumps in and slugs Bagwell hard. Garvin gets in to try to calm things down, and Hayes instinctively slugs him too. The Freebirds argue as Smothers tries a weird rotating splash off the top rope on the prone Bagwell, but Bagwell gets his knees up. Bagwell hits a fisherman's suplex for the pin. The Freebirds make peace after the match. Uh, yeah, lots and lots of stalling. <laughs> yeah. That's my big takeaway on this match. From what I understand, Tracy Smothers, who's one half of the Young Pistols, had recently turned heel. So maybe he's just not good at being a heel. Like, he's been faced so long, he doesn't know what to do. And he's like, well, the only thing I can think of is to just stall and just complain. Mm-hmm. Which, I guess, makes me hate him, so in a way that works. <laughs> <laughs> it, it just didn't make the match interesting. Mm-hmm. I will say at least the hook of the Freebirds battling each other did pay off. That said, it's kind of weird that the ref sees them all staying in the ring in the corner and just lets everything go on like normal. It's like, eh, yeah, you know, rules, rules. This is an important show anyways. <laughs> it just took way too long to begin. This is just an odd way to start the show. Yeah. I think they were just buying time to get everyone set up for everything else. <laughs> yeah. Could be. You know, they had some spots where they were trying to get the cr- crowd involved. It was it was just a warm-up. I think uh, towards the end, they had some, some crowd participation, so then that match progressed normally and, until there was an outcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this one I felt was a pretty poor opener, um, and I'm attributing that mostly to Tracy Smothers, who spent the majority of the match doing little more than stalling. Mm-hmm. Hayes, Garvin, and Bagwell all did their parts, but Smothers just kept slowing things down for me. I did enjoy the Freebird versus Freebird segment, though. The Freebirds did a nice job of competing with each other, but in exactly the way you'd expect to see tag team partners who didn't want to hurt each other compete. So they don't do impact moves, they don't do strikes, they just use, you know, arm drags or lever each other over for pins. I enjoyed the sort of mutual admiration society they had going on, too. It was pretty funny. Mm -hmm. It just took this far too long to get to an acceptable level for an opener. I 
have big compliments for the Freebirds here, honestly. Their personalities lifted this up a lot and stopped it, for, stopped it from being a total waste. But poor match. If this was like later match in the show where it's just four singles wrestlers that have no connection to each other at all and go, okay, maybe they know how to do a tag match, at least with each other. But this is, at this point, three of the four people are really long-term regular tag team. Mm-hmm. And Bagwell, at this point, is basically all he does because he's really new to the industry, so they put him in tag matches. Um, obviously, there's a lot of stuff to sort of made up in this confusing way this whole show is built with random tag partners, but I just thought the coward people evolved to handle it better than they actually did. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. Tracy Smothers is, at uh, this point, is part of the Young Pistols, who are there, the current U.S. tag team champions. Which doesn't matter in the show because literally no titles are on the line in any way, shape, or form. Their career sadly ends in WCW in the lovely month of January. Of course. <laughs> as nearly everything bad seems to happen. Mm-hmm. Basically, in a two-week span, they appear on a Clash Champions, which we're not going to cover, to lose their titles and then do one more show and they're gone. Okay. After that thrilling opener, Tony and JR talk up how unique it was to see the Freebirds fight each other and throw back to Eric for the next drawing. This time, we get shots of the two locker rooms the faces and heels are now in to see the reactions to the name draws, which is kind of a nice touch. Yeah. Gives a little bit more of that sports feel again. I always like when they do that. Our second match is Stunning Steve Austin and Ravishing Rick Rude of the Dangerous Alliance. Great name. Oh, yeah. Uh, accompanied by Paul E. Dangerously versus Heavy Metal Van Hammer and Big <laughs> Josh. <laughs> yeah. That That is a 90s name. Oh, yeah. That is a 90s name. Van Hammer is not a uh, family name. Pro- probably not. That'd be that'd be Von Hammer. <laughs> yeah, if he was a if this was the late eighties, he'd be like he'd be Eric Von Hammer. Yeah. Now it's the nineties. He's Van Hammer. Yep. Yeah. So in our first match, we had a tag team just happening to be drawn against each other, and in our second match, we have teammates just happening to be drawn together. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of starting to doubt the the randomness of these draws. Rick Rude kisses the camera on the way down, and I am crushed that he doesn't have his old film noir music. Mm-hmm. I think we all we all love that theme, and or needed to shower after it. <laughs> it's memorable, given that. Yes. Yeah, I wish he'd use that for the rest of his career. <laughs> I don't know why he doesn't. Yeah. It is also enormously weird to see the future Stone Cold Steve Austin like this. Yeah. One, he has hair. Yes. Two, no goatee. That's true. Three, some of the loudest trunks you will ever see. Yeah. I feel like when they were coming up with the WWF look for him, they just looked at this and said, let's do exactly the opposite. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it's, it's, if you're used to Stone Cold Steve Austin, bald goatee, you know, black trunks you know, leather vest, you know, flip the bird and all that. It's nothing like this, where he has no. long blonde hair and neat, bright, multicolored neon tights. Yes. Did What did you call them? The Saved by the Bell pants, I think I did? believe, yeah. yeah. They, they look like the Saved by the Bell logo, yeah. I think that's appropriate. John, had you ever seen Austin with this look? No. In fact, <laughs> I, uh, for a long time during the match, I was just sitting there incredulously like, this is not him. <laughs> 
this cannot be him. But you know the mannerisms and the movements—they all align. Yeah, you could, you can, you can tell once you watch him. But when he first comes out, you're like, "Who's that?" He has the same name as, as Stone Cold. <laughs> <laughs> Are there a second Steve Austin? And a fair technically there is. That's the six million dollar man. But still, yes, he was not a wrestler. <laughs> he just has a different body type. Yeah. And part of that may be due to age, you know, the neck injury and everything that he ends up with in the early part of his WWF career. I'm sure that changed his uh, routines and and everything. So his look ends up a little different there too, but he's a markedly different wrestler during this period in his career in both look and uh, the actual like moveset. His mannerisms are similar, but a lot of the moves that he does, there's a much more wrestling focus where the later Austin is brawling one. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's an interesting transition to see. You'll see it throughout the show as of less and less hair. Yes. And then it slowly goes, okay, now, okay, I could see it now. Mm-hmm. A couple of years from now, you'll be able to spy more easily. He just has such nice hair. Yeah. I'm sure he misses it. <laughs> <laughs> Hammer has control with his raw power to start, with Austin unable to use his better technical skill to get advantage. Hammer even counters out of a front face lock into a hammer lock. A Van Hammer lock? Mm-hmm. A me lock. <laughs> Austin eventually uses speed and a ton of snapmares to disorient Hammer and gets Rude in to take solid control. Rude and Austin trade off to keep Hammer down, with Rude using heavy strikes and Austin hitting a nice gut wrench suplex. Rude tries to keep Hammer from getting to Big Josh, but Hammer lifts Rude up and pushes him back to get the tag. There's a great bit as Big Josh knocks Rude down and runs on his chest. The log roll, that's called. But Rude no-sells due to his chiseled abs. <laughs> Josh tries a few punches to the abs, but Rude ignores those too. That got got me laughing pretty hard. Yeah, I like mimicked that, that aspect <laughs> of the character, yeah. Just like flexes. <laughs> yeah, oh, you can't you can't you can't stop me. <laughs> that that would that would not work with my abs. He knows the iron shirt technique. Yes. (laughs) Josh eventually gets smart and clotheslines Rude in the face instead, and he does well against both Dangerous Alliance members, keeping them off balance and even dropping Austin onto the top rope, a move Austin himself likes to use. Hammer gets back in briefly and gets another Van Hammerlock, as JR notes that he's, quote, keeping it very elementary. With Josh back in, he grabs Austin from behind, but Austin charges to the ropes and ducks for Rude to hit a nice clothesline. Pretty cool spot there. Mm-hmm. Austin and Rude trade off, giving Josh a beating, working together and using Hammer to distract the ref. They even fake a tag with Rude just theatrically clapping his hands behind the ref's back. Josh eventually catches Austin on a leapfrog and slams him, but makes the mistake of trying an elbow drop before tagging, and Austin dodges. Austin chokes him on the ropes, and Paul pulls Josh for Austin to try to jump on his back, but Josh dodges, and Austin hits Paul. Josh tags Hammer, who gets a pretty nice power slam and a belly-to-back suplex, as JR notes that there's little finesse in him. Hammer continues dominating, but Rude sneaks in the tag when Hammer whips Austin to the ropes. Unaware, Hammer goes for a move on Austin, but Rude comes in and hits the Rude Awakening for the pin. I'm kind of wondering why this wasn't the opening match of the show. Because, I mean, you have strong story, you have the Ninja Alliance actually together, you have a very strong team dynamic. It really fits into this whole story they're trying to go for, ignoring the statistical improbability of the two being on the same team together. Yeah. But you get that contrast of the well-oiled machine, to use a cliche, 
and the two singles wrestlers together. Personally, I liked everyone but Van Hammer in the match. <laughs> Just being very nice. Big Josh didn't have a whole lot going on, but what he did was done well. Mm-hmm. And his, his little log roll thing, he had a whole spot there. Yeah. So he gave his, gave his part to the match. I definitely liked the uh, heelish uh, victory they did. The blind tag and striking their free and all that. That really played to their characters really well. And then def- I think definitely the right team win. Mm-hmm. I was glad that, you know, out of pure randomness, those two were there. Uh, <laughs> I enjoyed seeing Rude again and the proto Stone Cold. And I'm I'm really glad that the match ended the way it did. I thought the hidden tag was perfectly executed. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Rude's finisher, Rude Awakening, um, was probably the best I've seen him perform it. So it was, a, it was just, it was a nice finish to uh, a match that really should have been first. And I agree with you there. Part of that might be because uh, it was also felt like there was a natural progression for the whole match rather than, mm-hmm. you know, stalling. And so it was by and large, uh, you know, 100% improvement over the last one. Yeah. It's a pretty simple match overall with several moves that get repeated. Mm-hmm. Austin hits a lot of snap mares, Hammer goes back to the hammer lock, and there's a lot of basic striking, but it really keeps moving. And sure. like you guys were saying, it really builds. There's a decent story there. Um, I think you were mentioning, Al, of Josh and Hammer not really knowing how to work together. Yes. Well, Austin and Rude really have had a lot of practice. So Hammer and Josh seem to really just try and fight individually and only tag when they get in trouble. Mm-hmm. While Austin and Rude keep up more of a steady stream of tags and use them tactically and work together. And yeah, they worked in a few very fun ideas for spots. Rude's invulnerable abs being the highlight of the match and possibly the <laughs> highlight of the night. <laughs> that was really a great idea. A fun but pretty basic match. Nothing exceptional, but not bad. Really good ending, though. I will definitely agree with you there, uh, John. That was impeccably timed and very, very smooth, especially by uh, by Rude on it. Oh, yeah. I, I actually almost missed the tag the first time. They, they just they snuck it in so well. Yeah, so I, I think I'm with you guys. I, I have no idea why this was not the opening match. It's like th- this 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 one got me charged up. The yeah. opening, the actual opening match. I was like, I think you could testify to this. Out when we were watching that one together, I was like, oh my gosh, do something. It's still going. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, m- much better match for the second match tonight. Did either of you feel like Tony and Jr. were really disingenuous when they were complimenting Hammer though? Oh, yeah. yeah. Extremely. <laughs> There's something about their tone. It's like, particularly that first hammer lock, Tony's like, oh, great move. But it's in exactly that kind of tone where there's a silent, I honestly didn't think you knew how to do that <laughs> to it. <laughs> it's like the the kid first drawing. You're like, oh, that's amazing. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Not that you would know anything about that, I'm sure. No, I wouldn't. <laughs> no, absolutely. 100% genuine at all times. <laughs> Maybe I didn't pick up on it that much, but, you know, <laughs> I'm sure it was like that. Every now and then I'm like, I don't think you believe that. JR, you see his history, he's a repeated use of certain expressions. Like if someone does a suplex, but they like sort of fall to the side or do something wrong, he'll be like, it's a, a, build, like a modified suplex yes. or a form of a suplex. So he has ways to sort of soften the blow on that a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess that's a good way of, of just saying, like, oh, maybe they're trying stuff new, you know, trying new stuff, even if it's sarcastic. Yeah. What's interesting with this match is that we obviously had Rick Rude one time before, 
we got him like a year and a half, maybe two years into his career. Yes. Oddly, with that's part of the group, though. I just this is a much better group for sure, and obviously with much, my opinion personally, made much better people to work with. So the very first show with him and Wild McDaniel, we get fairly untested but natural heel. Rickard was just always a natural heel. You can see it in, in that match. Oh yeah, yeah. But little he gets to shine that match, you can really see that. And then we have him left there, and oh, you know, wrestled Hogan, wrestled uh, Warrior, wrestled all these people. Really tested himself, and now he's back as the fully formed Rick Rude that we expect. Yeah, this is the polished Rick Rude. Exactly. We saw the we saw the potential last time. Now we're saying, oh yeah, this is what he's capable of, and yeah, he's really good. Absolutely. There's a several year gap, and suddenly he reappeared. And you're like, wow, he is a lot better, and he's got everything down. Yep. So if you caught this before, but you actually have seen Big Josh before. Big Joss was previously wrestling as one half of the South African team. Ah, right. He was the guy that wasn't Rock or Rock. He was the guy that didn't uh, crack his head against the floor. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the slightly bearded but not fully bearded guy in the South African team is now the fully bearded Big Josh. Okay. Who will still, as I mentioned before, will go on to become a clown. Yes. So it's South African general to log rolling, you know... Lumberjack. Yeah, Lumberjack, thank you. To clown. Okay. There's definitely a four-step somewhere in there we're supposed to get. I don't know. That's a career progression there. Yeah. <laughs> it's versatility. Yeah. JR points out that the Dangerous Alliance now have two men in Battle Bowl, and there's three more Dangerous Alliance members in the tournament. Bobby Eaton, Arn Anderson, and Larry Zabisco. He hopes for some of them having to face each other. Tony hopes that it's Zabisco versus Anderson because they've been a great tag team, and that would be an interesting fight. Meanwhile, we see a sign in the crowd that says, quote, Gobble, gobble, torch turkey. I have no idea what that means. Yeah, I'm, I'm very perplexed by that as well. Because we are past the point where this is taking place around Thanksgiving. Yeah. This is four days after Christmas. clearly not a Thanksgiving reference. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we're on an Olympic year. I feel like those are evens. So I don't know. Maybe it's someone that doesn't like isn't one of the magazines the Pro Wrestling Torch. Maybe maybe really doesn't like the torch. I don't know. Hmm. It's just it's one of those weird signs. It's, that's not quite up to the level of strangeness of the uh, Sting and Luger or cow hips, but cow whips, cow whips, cow hips, co whips. I'm still not sure. <laughs> Cat whips don't lie. Also, a guy in the crowd brings up a sign requesting that Medusa come to room 269 in the Holiday Inn. The key is under the mat. Wow. Just wow. Fortunately, a security guard rather quickly runs him off. Yeah, this fan interaction is not always a good thing on shows. Yeah. Our third match is The Natural, Dustin Rhodes and Richard Morton versus The Cruncher, Larry Zabisco, accompanied by Medusa, and Elegante. Uh, Dustin Rhodes, son of Dusty Rhodes, was clearly hoping that his buddy Ricky Steamboat uh, would be his partner. I mean, wouldn't you? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Even now I'd wish for that. Dustin Rhodes and Ricky Steamboat are now the current WWE World Tag Team Champions, having bested... Larry Zabisco and Anderson. So there is that dynamic in there. Dang, I'd like to see that match. <laughs> it 
Yeah, I think that's a clash. We might not get it, but I'm, we'll find it somewhere, yeah. I'm sure. This is uh, evil heel Ricky Morton. Yes. As Richard Morton. <laughs> yeah, apparently if you go by your full name, that, that's how you tell people you're evil. If you're Terry, you know, you're really informal, but Terrence, oh, oh Terrence, that, that's a bad dude. They were from Terrence. If I come on the show and call myself Robert Moore, I've clearly turned heel. Absolutely. Yeah. And, of course, uh, Zabisco, as mentioned earlier, is a member of the Dangerous Alliance. So this match determines whether they have a third Dangerous Alliance member in the ring for Battle Bowl tonight. Elegante is one of those guys I always felt who's who's big, but not really impressive big. He's more elongated than he is massive. You sure it should be El Elongante? <laughs> Yeah, there's certain people. Yeah, I mean, like Manu Bowl, you know, was seven foot four or five, whatever he was, but he wasn't built like Shaquille O'Neal, who we'd seen a few years from this mm-hmm. show, or like an Andre the Giant situation. But he's tall, but it just, as far as blocking like doorways, he's great at that. But I mean, yeah, I don't, I'm not as nearly as intimidated by by him as I would be other people. Yeah, you have like you like you said, you have Andre. You have Big Show. Those two are like, you feel the, the, the true, like, the giant about them, where it's just like everything about about their their, their size right. is just, like, impressive. And then you have guys that are, are very tall, mm-hmm. but they don't have that, like, sense of weight or that sense of power about them. That's where I think Elegante kind of lacks. I mean, he's a little less imposing, but when you see the comparison, when he does, when he picks him off the ground, it does, the effect is there. Yeah, true. As they're coming down the ramp, Medusa taps Zabisco on the shoulder and points out Elegante coming behind them, and Zabisco flips out and scampers into the ring. (laughs) Zabisco talks strategy with Elegante before the match, and amusingly climbs up on the ropes to be closer. There's clearly some kind of disagreement, and a frustrated Zabisco goes in to start the match. Weirdly, I noticed they used different corners of the ring than usual. They did, yeah, I noticed that too. Yeah, it it doesn't affect anything, really. It's just... I mean, I guess they, maybe they got confused because they're, they're changing rings every other match, too. So it's yeah, like, possible. I don't, think it was, I don't think it was an intentional thing. <laughs> Zabisco struggles against Rhodes starting out and tries to convince Elegante to slug Rhodes from outside, but he gets ignored. Rhodes tags Morton, and Zabisco tags Elegante, so Morton quickly scampers back to his corner and tags Rhodes. Rhodes gives a resigned look and gets back in. Rhodes can't knock Elegante down, and Elegante slams Morton when Morton tries to quick run in. A slam to Rhodes, too, and JR notes that Zabisco is yelling almost sage-like advice. Get him! Tag back to a reluctant Zabisco, and he keeps advantage, including a nice swinging neckbreaker that nearly gets three until Morton saves. Nice unexpected spin kick, too. Yeah, true. Zabisco keeps yelling to Elegante to help from outside, but Elegante just ignores him and yells at Medusa when she weighs in. Rhodes hits his dad's bionic elbows to stun Zabisco and starts fighting back. But Zabisco throws him away on a bulldog attempt and tags Elegante. Zabisco yells at Elegante to get Rhodes while he's down, but Elegante is far too honorable for that, so Zabisco slaps him in the face. Realizing his mistake, Zabisco drops to the floor, but Elegante reaches way down and grabs him, throwing him into the ring. Elegante whips Zabisco into a slightly mistimed double drop kick from Morton and Rhodes, and that gets the win. Elegante shakes hands with Rhodes and tries to shake hands with Morton, but Morton walks away. This is an interesting match because it's definitely built around Larry Zabisco trying to make everything work, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Elegante definitely doesn't have a whole... He's not 
I'm not gonna say he's worthless because he's definitely not worthless. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying to spin this in a way. I mean, I don't think he was very good. And to be fair, he's an Argentinian basketball player hired for the Atlanta. I think it's the Atlanta Hawks. I believe it is the basketball team. I'm bad with those. Basically, he wasn't good at running back and down the court because he's seven foot tall and his knees weren't great. Mm-hmm. So, like, well, we have this guy. We pay him a bunch of money. We're gonna do with him. Oh, let's just slap uh, tinfoil on him and call him Elegante. <laughs> so I don't blame him for not being good because they clearly wanted to use him. So it's not like he didn't try to be good. It's just he didn't have an opportunity for that. They work around him really well. They let him do a couple spots that he can do, but the bulk of the match is keeping him out of it and building the story around him not wanting to be in and not doing things. When he actually does his stuff, it's good, so I'll give him that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But it's definitely the Bisco that drives the whole thing. He has constantly arguing with him, trying to get him to do stuff, and obviously doing the workload of, of the match on his side. Kind of a shame that the everything but the actual timing on the double dropkick is really good. The pull him into the ring, sold real as Bisco, and he's thrown in. Obviously, the, the issue is that it's Richard Morton and Dustin Road, as opposed to Richard Morton and his normal tag partner, who I'm sure even now literally just had a match like two weeks ago the NWA probably have the timing down to perfection. Because you mix these people up and wanted to do a spot they don't really do together, it doesn't work as well. Mm-hmm. Like we had this with the last match with um, the sort of mismatched um, Rock and Roll Express with Thomas Rich, we have the inevitable comparisons to the Rock and Roll Express, which are just hard to love to. Yeah. Hey, you guys are way too rough on El Gigante here. <laughs> Again, this is the first time me seeing him, so you know I, my expectations are are being formed. You know, like that I have no preconceived notion of what he's capable or incapable of. Sure, Zabisco reminds me of just like an agitated animal, <laughs> like like you know like the like a something that's just yapping at you. And and, and I uh, appreciate um, you know we've we've had another uh, Starcade where. You know, we had uh, respect between some other members and, you know, they allowed them to get up. And it, so, I, I mean, I respect that, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm cool with that. And there was a lot of spots where he just picks up people and tosses them around. I enjoyed that he just picked them out of the ring, like out yeah. from the outside and threw them in. And everyone won except for Zabisco. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think they use Elegante very, very well. This one, I think, is booked to perfection using him in exactly the right way. Like you said, Al, they give him exactly what they know he can do. Mm-hmm. They use his size very well in this one. That spot, John, like you mentioned, of him dragging Zabisco back in the ring, even though Zabisco dropped to the floor, that is a real highlight tonight, honestly. It's, it's, a, yeah. it's a great bit. For me, this was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed this match. Almost all, in my case, due to Larry Zabisco. Mm-hmm. There's not a ton of actual action, but it comes off way better than the first match because there's a story to the stalling. It's all about Zabisco not knowing how to work with a good guy as his partner. And it's genuinely funny seeing him get more and more frustrated trying to get Elegante to do anything even remotely heelish. It doesn't come off as strong as it might, due in part to Elegante not really emoting that much, in part to the announcers sometimes passing it off questionably, as Elegante not understanding due to poor English skills, the story might have come off stronger if they sold it as him just entirely refusing. Yeah. And honestly, it's a little weak because the stuff Zabisco's trying to get him to do sometimes seems pretty minimal, telling him 
hey, hold your knee up. I'll slam the guy into it, which we see other face wrestlers do yeah. across the night. But he refuses even that. I think it'd be better if Zabisco were doing things like trying to fake a tag or yeah, you know, things yeah. like that. But still, Zabisco's performance is really great. Elegante is basically a very nice prop for the rest of them to act around. And Rhodes and Morton are fine, but largely just play the role of the other team in this match. Their characters don't matter that much to this, though Morton does get in a, a funny spot or two. It's the Zabisco show, but fortunately for me, the Zabisco show was really fun. No, I can see that. Larry Zabisco does not uh, stay being a regressor much longer, but mid-1992, he decides to retire and become a commentator, which obviously he, we will see and hear from him a lot more on that. Now, that said, he is kind of brought back in every once in a while for matches. We'll mm-hmm. think we'll even see at least one of them on Starcade run. If think, I remember yeah, correctly. I think it's Starcade 97 he has one. Right. But for the most part, he he's retired to do commentary, play golf, and constantly bring up the fact that he plays golf on commentary. (laughs) JR and Tony talk again about the Dangerous Alliance's chances tonight and whether the remaining members, Arn Anderson and Bobby Eaton, might end up together. We go back for the next draw, and as we do, we see Zabisco going back to the locker room and arguing with Richard Morton. Our next match is the world's strongest man, Bill Kazmaier, and Jushin Thunder Liger versus Diamond Dallas Page and Mike Graham. We last saw Mike Graham competing with Jesse Barr for the Florida heavyweight title back at Starcade 84. He had a uh, very nice mustache at the time, as I recall. I believe that's correct, yes. <laughs> By this point, I understand that he's more commonly working as a road agent and a trainer. I'm guessing that's probably why he's in the match here, since we have a relatively new performer in Bill Kazmaier and a very, very new one in Diamond Dallas Page. Right. Diamond Dallas Page, who will become one of the biggest stars of WCW later on, started out as a manager in 1988. Notably, back in 1990, before coming to WCW, he was at WrestleMania VI to bring tag team Rhythm and Blues to the ring in his own pink Cadillac. In 1991, the year of this show, he came to WCW as a manager, but on the advice of Magnum TA, he became a wrestler as well. Note, however, that his first match was actually in 1989 during his run as an announcer in Florida Championship Wrestling against Dick Slater. Still, he's 35 years old here and still a rookie, getting in quite a bit later than others. Jushin Thunder Liger is currently, at this point in the show, the WCW Light Heavyweight Champion. She wanted a house show on Christmas Day. Oh. So I was like, yeah, it's Christmas good for you, but you also made someone else lose their title, so kind of mixed blessing on yeah. that. <laughs> Jushin Thunder Liger looks absolutely awesome. Oh, yeah. Yes. With, yes. <laughs> it's an outfit like nothing else that we've ever seen on the show. It's like something right out of one of Japan's transforming hero shows. He, he is, in fact, a common writer. Yes. Yeah. As it turns out, there's a reason for that, because he was, in fact, based off of the main character of the anime series Jushin Liger, which ran from 1989 to 1990. He doesn't transform in this one or grow 30 feet tall, which is very disappointing. Yeah, Sorry to spoil that for you. (laughs) People are going to stop listening now. Thanks, John. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, he might. Liger and Graham start out with quick wrestling encounters, mixed in with some snappy spin kicks from Liger. Graham seems to mistime his fall on a head scissors and comes down pretty badly, but Tony nicely covers by saying he was trying to keep his vertical base. 
Liger tries a cartwheel into what looked like either a flipping kick or another head scissor, but Graham just steps back and lets him flop, then tries a pin for two. Liger seems frustrated and tags Kazmaier. Kazmaier throws Graham around, and Graham tags Paige, who offers a test of strength, but then just smugly kicks Kazmaier in the gut. Things quickly turn against him as he can't even move Kazmaier with anything he tries, and Kazmaier catches him on a crossbody, carries him around, and dumps him on the mat. Paige finally manages to throw Kazmaier over the top rope, but Kazmaier grabs the ropes and flips back in. Really impressive to see a big guy do that. I was the only surprised to see that happen. Yeah. yeah. You and I, were both our jaws kind of dropped while we like, were watching oh. that. Like, ah, oh, I did not, did not see that coming, yeah. That move, incidentally, is called skinning the cat. I've not been able to find out why. It's a calisthenics move, but sites I read also had no idea why it was actually called that. It just seems to be one of those names that's always been around, and no one has a clue when it, where it came from. Yeah, I, I can't think of a context that, that makes a lot of sense in. Tony rightly notes that with his size and ability to flip back in like that, Kazmaier might be a favorite in Battle Bull. Kazmaier continues dominating, but Paige dodges a splash and wears the big man down. The teams start trading off, with Liger and Kazmaier mostly dominating. Notably, Kazmaier has no problem raising his knee for Liger to ram Graham into it. I bet Zabisco wishes Kazmaier was his partner now. At one point, Paige impressively hefts Kazmaier up, but Kazmaier falls on top for two. Liger and Graham have fast counter-sequences with both grappling and Liger's kicks, and Liger gets an amazing lifting surfboard submission move. They shake hands in respect after a series of pin attempts by both. Tony at one point notes that Liger may have the quickest kicks he's ever seen, quote, from a human. I, I wonder what else Tony has been watching kick things. <laughs> Actual Ligers. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, very quick. <laughs> Graham falls out of the ring on a missed charge, and the camera nearly entirely misses Liger hitting a flipping dive out onto him. Back in via Liger suplex, and Liger gets a moonsault for two as Paige saves Graham. Kazmaier comes in to beat up Paige, and Kazmaier and Liger fling Paige and Graham into each other. Kazmaier lifts Liger and flings him onto Paige, and that gets the pin. I didn't ever see Paige actually tagged in mine, so I'm pretty sure that Graham was actually still the legal man. Yeah, it's true. I'm pretty sure that's correct, yeah. <laughs> I think Paige actually just, like, runs in and mm-hmm. is totally in the ring for the rest of the match, so there's no point at which you could have actually tagged Graham. It's a mixed one for me. Actually, it was... Honestly, hearing about it, I was worried it'd be really lopsided because I love Liger as a really good performer, but I was worried that everyone else essentially would not be up to par. That's somewhat true in the sense that Graham definitely is not used to his style off offense it seems mm-hmm. that or maybe she hasn't done it in a long time maybe he's wrestled people that size but he doesn't do it regularly so he's just out of practice with it regardless it, it hurts Liger stuff a little bit when he you know just the timing on the pitches as you noted and other stuff like that that said Liger does still really impress me in here Kazmaier surprised me a lot that's getting the cat thing aside because mm-hmm. kind of like with it with um other people like Gante, for instance, he doesn't do a whole lot, but he does what he does. He actually does really well, and he knows his character of being the big immovable guy who can throw people around really well. It's not exactly the most complicated thing in the world, but he does that. Mm-hmm. Likewise, DDP is in ring performance is not quite up there yet because obviously he's got a lot of a lot more years of practice and performance into it. But he he really does the heel 
like especially the cowardly heel very well in this match he has his character down already yeah like immediately yeah, yeah. basically he, he's ready to go yeah exactly it's half of the ddp performance as the heel anyways that you expect just once you get the full package it'll be even better mm-hmm. i also liked that just like the previous match it was a double team or tag team move that did it i like that they're building that tag team moves are winning the matches and not just single wrestler moves that don't really build the story yeah okay we saw different matches because <laughs> okay. this is amazing <laughs> It's team cosplay. Like, you have the most human version of a Goron and some Japanese robot fighting two <laughs> humans. <laughs> True. Okay. Yeah. I enjoyed a lot of the athleticism. Uh, Thunder Liger, Hasmir was impressive. I mean, just mm-hmm. the physicality of, the, of mm-hmm. the character. No, sure. The, you called it an elevated surfboard? Yeah, where he kind of, like, wraps Graham up and lifts him above his head with yeah, the... Yeah, yeah, Liger does that, and I'm wondering the whole time. I'm like, why isn't the ref counting him? Because his shoulders are down while he's <laughs> it doing kind of does submission. look like, yeah, you know, like, I'm like okay, we're doing this little table press or whatever it is, and like his shoulders are down. You, I remember, you know, other matches where some, the guy that was doing the submission hold got counted out, and I was mm-hmm. just curious why this one specific move wasn't part of those same rules. Because they, they knew he wasn't supposed to lose via pinfall. Yeah, probably. You know, but like a lot of great teamwork for, uh, is this the first time they've ever paired up? I would imagine so. I believe I mean, so, yeah. To my knowledge, this is the first time, yes. Yeah, they did a great job with, uh, you know, throwing two people from the ropes, having them collide together, and having another uh, duo finisher. You know, it reminds me of, honestly, it's like a chrono trigger, like multi-attack. <laughs> Uh, for those for those things, like where if you just happen to yes. do the right two super moves, then they have some sort of finisher. Nice. That's what I got from this. This yeah. is totally some RPG stuff. So yes. I yeah. enjoyed it, to say the least. Just to be clear, I I did like the match. My point was that I thought it was going to be really bad because like Bill Kazmaier is someone that's not talked about highly. So mm-hmm. seeing the actual match was but surprised me because it was so good. Okay. I just didn't think you had the level of excitement that was <laughs> that was needed. Yeah, this was the best match so far tonight from a technical standpoint by far. Graham has slowed down a bit since we last saw him, but he clearly knows what he's doing in there. And Liger has a billion and one awesome moves to pull off. They do seem to have a miscommunication or two starting out, but they quickly get used to working with each other and they have a number of really nice exchanges. The one complaint I think is I could sometimes see Graham getting ready for the next spot, like prepping to make sure his hold is right or to let Liger flip over him in a way that's a little bit more obvious than normal. Um, I think it's just a matter of, you know, being out of practice or having slowed down a bit with this being later in his career. He was still, I think, a very good choice among those that they had to go up against Liger. At Starcade 84, I remember he had a lot of pretty good mat wrestling technique and yeah. everything during that mm-hmm. match, too. Kazmaier was used really well and looked really strong. I loved him just carrying people around as they tried to put holds on him, and he had some really good power moves. Um, and that bit when DDP is first in there where he's just like trying to even move him and Kazmaier's yeah, yeah. just standing there is great. DDP didn't look anywhere near as green as I thought he would. In part, like you were saying, Al, I think he just already has a really, really strong character. He's got great posture, too. It's the yoga. And it covers that he only really does some very basic moves during the match. He just has enough persona to kind of cover all of that. Even this early, he played a really good part in the match, and it's easy to see why he became a big star later on. 
So yeah, this was a very, very fun match. Uh, so as you noted, Graham was not a regular wrestler at this point, so he mostly um, was a trainer and a road agent. No, he, he did work in the power plant, helped train a lot of people. Yeah. On uh, the related note, DDP, basically he was told that they're going to be a wrestler, but they weren't really going to highlight him because they didn't think he had that sort of magic thing that you, they need to have. So for his part, he kept managing people. He formed his own stable in 92 with Scotty Flamingo and Vinny Vegas. Mm-hmm. Basically, every t- free time he had, he went to the power plant or the equivalent of that at the time and trained to be the best wrestler he could. DDP is a is a fascinating case to me, I think, as, as, you, as we'll look through his career, that the guy's a story in dedication, I think. Absolutely. That yeah. he starts out late and resolves to, you know, I'm going to work and work and work and work and work until I get to a level that they want to use me reliably and, you know, yeah. on, on the upper tiers. And we will see him doing things in various ways over the years. And finally, I think it's like mid-96 that, that we'll actually see DDP come into his own. But yeah, it's, it's fascinating to me to see how good DDP is at his character right from the start. Double Dragon Page is pretty sweet. <laughs> Except for he doesn't have a partner yet that's exactly like him. <laughs> if he had only paired with uh, Liger, yeah, <laughs> he would have some sort of transformation. <laughs> they have similar hair volume for sure. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, they do. Baseball has the World Series. Football has the Super Bowl. Professional wrestling has Super Brawl. Championship Wrestling presents an event of such magnitude, it could only be called Super Brawl 2. Coming Saturday, February 29th, live only on pay-per-view. Call your local cable operator for availability. We get a quick Super Brawl ad that notes that it's WCW's version of the Super Bowl or the World Series. Is nowhere near as awesome as last year's Wrestle War ad, unfortunately. <laughs> no. <laughs> Definitely not. It's interesting how they build Super Brawl up, though, that it, it definitely seems like an argument against WCW thinking of Starcade as its biggest show at this point. They're selling Super Brawl like the biggest event of the year and not Starcade. Meanwhile, Starcade is getting a random bunch of tag matches with no particular storyline attached. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I was thinking about, too, Super Brawl is the only series to my knowledge that is simply numbered right yeah all of them get all the other ones get like stark 889 stark 890 super brawl gets super brawl 1 2 3 yeah which is how they do wrestlemania yes it's really only to the very last one they they sort of break that numbering trend yes yeah revenge is apparently a number yeah well that's after 11 <laughs> super i think they were going after something that was like they clearly drew, drew the line with Super Bowl, so they're gonna have yes. to they're gonna have to use some sort of naming convention that uses the number. This is the second year that I want to see <laughs> whatever they're advertising. <laughs> They've got a bad habit of that with you, don't they, John? Mm-hmm. Well, I just either the commercials are too good, or they just need to up what they're doing in Starcade. <laughs> yeah, it, they need to stop advertising shows that look more interesting than what's going on in the middle of a show. <laughs> I would like to see a um, very literal usage of the Super Bowl concept that they're 
they're saying, which is it's the Super Bowl and the and the World Series together. It's so like you know people wearing full pad but batting, or you know people wearing full pads and charging towards the bases. Yeah, I want like a, a full combination of those two things together. Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. Oh, and it's uh it's going to be taking place on Leap Day, nineteen ninety two as well. It's Lethal Leap Year. Yeah, there you go. All pins have to be done from the turnbuckle. What I would love to see, though, is if they're going to put these great ads in there, they need to have a match right after that ad that will determine some outcome in that Super Brawl. That's a great idea. Yeah, if yeah. you did it as like, you know, watch Super Brawl coming up, and then you use that, you reinforce that by in saying, the, and the... here's a match that's gonna that's determining, you know, who's in this and this at Super Brawl. Mm-hmm. That's a terrific concept, yeah. See, John, if you had worked for WCW, they would still be they around. They would not listen to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I will say one thing in Super Bowl as well. If it is on Leap Day, and this is WCW, we know they love hiring celebrities. They should have had Scott Bakula as a guest ref. Yes. Yes, they should have. I'm in favor of more Scott Bakula on any show, basically. Oh, yeah. <laughs> They're not that enterprising. <laughs> we get to our next draw. Eric looks way too excited on this one, honestly. Our next match is The Total Package, Lex Luger, with Harley Race, and Double A, Arn Anderson, versus Terrence Taylor and The Z-Man. As the drawing completes and we go to the entrance ramp, we hear someone, I'm thinking it was probably Missy Hyatt, saying, I can run now, right? (laughs) Well, we know it's not the guest commissioner, because he's going to talk the entire show. (laughs) No. It's just a guest. He just yep. sort of smiles and has a mustache. I think he says one word at one point, but not on the microphone. They should give him the final word like they did with Gordon Sully. Well, cut. <laughs> it's a cut away. Lex Luger is currently world heavyweight champion and turned heel to win the title and gain the aid of former champion Harley Race. So he's now using Harley Race's pile driver as his finisher. Yes. Rather than the torture rack that we still have not actually seen successfully used once. Well, you know Luger's a heel because he has, not only is he Harley Race, he also has Mr. Hughes. So he has two managers. Yes. He's doubly evil. And, of course, uh, Terrence Taylor, as we mentioned last time, has turned heel since the last show. Yes. Formerly Terry Taylor, he's now Terrence Taylor, and uh, has been part of the York Foundation as the Taylor-made man. Now, the thing with him is apparently the last few months... They're teasing a face turn. Like, mm-hmm. he doesn't like working with the York Foundation, but he also doesn't quit the York Foundation. Yeah. So that affects his match in a lot of ways, because he's... I think the crowd not sure he's a good guy or a bad guy. And they they definitely play with that during the match. Yeah. The announcers mention that a lot. Yeah. Taylor, on the ramp, looks back to see Z-Man coming out and gets a great, almost pained expression on his face. Kind of a, oh, no, not that guy. <laughs> Taylor and Z-Man yell at each other as Race discusses strategy with Anderson. Luger has banana yellow tights tonight. They really need, like, a logo or something to work better. Mm. Anderson and Z-Man start off as Anderson just slugs Taylor right off the bat and rolls out of the ring on a Z-Man whip. Anderson congratulates himself, but Taylor taps him on the shoulder and slugs him in the face and rolls him back in. Z-Man and Taylor pinball him back and forth with punches. Luger saves, and everyone brawls, with Anderson and Luger retreating. Tag to Luger, and Z-Man and Taylor trade off fighting well against the World Heavyweight Champion. Knocked out of the ring, Taylor comes back in with a sunset flip, and Luger repeatedly shuffles back and tries to punch free, only for Taylor to keep trying to bring him down. 
Luger makes it all the way across the ring, shuffling backwards slowly, and finally falls, but tags Anderson. <laughs> Pretty hilarious spot I mean, there. Yeah, he, he learned how to stay upright to avoid a sunset flip by teaming with Arn Anderson. Yes, yes. He is the master of that. Yes. The famous Aloha Arn spot. <laughs> Wave your arms to keep your body straight upright. <laughs> mm-hmm. Tony says that Taylor's refusal to give up was like a bone in his cap. JR asks if Tony means a feather, but Tony says no, a bone. As in bonehead. <laughs> kind of reaching a bit for that one, but I'll give it to him. <laughs> yeah, all I can think of when, with that description is the cliche caveman, like the caveman wife with the bone through her hair. <laughs> which is not the comparison I think you're going for. <laughs> I hope. Anderson gets in some hits, but Taylor and Z-Man trade off to take control again and get a few pin attempts with surprisingly good teamwork until Harley Race trips Z-Man and Anderson hits a nice DDT for two as Taylor saves. Anderson and Luger wear Z-Man down, including a massive screaming suplex by Luger and some classic Anderson tag work to prevent Z-Man from getting away even if he gets a hit in. Anderson eventually gets kicked in the face trying a second rope move. Tony says we don't often see Arn try high-risk maneuvers, and that's probably why. Z-Man gets the tag to Taylor, and Taylor fights off both Anderson and Luger as JR and Tony note that he's fighting well without York, and he seems to have something to prove. Taylor even gets a gut-wrench powerbomb on Luger. It looked a bit worrisome, but they made it work. And that gets two. Anderson and Luger stun him, and get a bit muddled trying a double suplex. But Z-Man saves. Ref Nick Patrick is distracted getting Z-Man to leave, and misses a Taylor roll-up. I'm sure it's not as mistake on his part, to be fair. Uh, oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, it's he's Nick Patrick. A, yeah, he's a referee you can trust. Yeah, he's the perfect ref. Absolutely. Taylor tries for the five-arm on Luger. But Anderson hits him from behind, and Luger nails the attitude adjustment pile driver for the win. <laughs> oh, I, I, I seriously wonder if anyone, like, when they were naming Cena's move, knew that that was Luger's old move. Is he secretly a Lex Luger fan? You think? I could see that. He, yeah. he's very loud in the ring, apparently. Yes, so that yeah, makes that's, sense. That's true. <laughs> My. Main note for the match is Luger makes everyone look good. I mean, the story of the match is that Luger has to be both strong and vulnerable. He has to be strong as a world champion, but also he has to make it believable that Terrence Taylor and Z-Man are able to knock him around and that he really needs to escape. It's a tricky balance to play being both strong and weak as a heel. And a lot of people try and they do not get it well. Mm -hmm. The match itself is fine. My only issue is I don't I go back to the issue with Terrence Taylor again, which is that I don't think his character works super great, especially at this point, his character's kind of muddled. So I don't know, I didn't find myself as invested as I think I needed to be for this match. It's the kind of thing with Z-Man. He's, Zink was a good wrestler, but he was never a great wrestler, and he was never a great character guy. Mm-hmm. He falls in that middle ground where you're like, you're fine, but adequate. Mm-hmm. So when he's with somebody that's really good, like I'm sure him and Arn is probably really good. Like, just in singles matches, but he needs that balance. I don't think he... I love like Luger, I don't think he quite gets enough of that in this match. So, match is just not as good as I'd hoped it would be, given the caliber on one side of the, mm-hmm. of the ring, because of the issues. Talent aside, on the other side. Okay. Okay, I... Where to start? Um, <laughs> it's again? good to see Arn. Luger, you're right. I think he does play... Um, a critical role in this match where he 
is you know running all over Z-Man, or he's he's begging for a, a tag. He sets up all the transitions for all the tags, just about. I th- I think mm-hmm. Z-Man has some miraculous moves occasionally. <laughs> like like <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't think they should. The outcomes don't match the effort he's putting in. I'm not trying to talk. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm not trying to to sell downsell him, but he wins the night for over Luger selling Luger. Uh, there's one punch where the, um, he like hits him in the face, and he turns towards the camera, and his face is all contorted, and he's going. <laughs> and I was like, okay, at least you know he's teaching him. <laughs> it was an okay match. Didn't have any robots or Gorons in it. I still enjoyed it, and I think Luger really kind of made the match work. Wow, yeah, you guys are reacting to this one quite a bit differently than than I am. I think it may just be my unending love for Arn Anderson, but (laughs) this was a good one for me. Anderson and Luger did a pretty good approximation of the old Anderson tag work. It's not quite as smooth as normal, but it was still good. Arn seems to work in smoothly as a team with just about anybody. He knows tag wrestling really well, so he can just plan out or do interesting spots with it with whatever partner he wants. And his tag matches just make sense overall. Z-Man and Taylor provide a good athletic foils. Like you said, their character isn't really strong, but they both are more than capable of good moves in the ring. And both teams gave this a pretty hard-fought feel. Taylor in particular looked really good, and he had a strong performance against the current world champion. If they wanted, I thought they could use this match to give Taylor a really good push. It didn't feel like this devalued Luger at all, though. He got to look powerful, even hurling Taylor off of him on a pin at one point, and his uh, massive screaming suplex was hilarious. Mm -hmm. There's a few awkward spots here and there, but this was a solid and very enjoyable match for me. Tony calls this the best match that they've seen tonight, and I really don't disagree. Yeah, like I said, I don't don't doubt the quality of the match. I'm not trying to downplay that. Just I didn't connect as much to the story as far as the Taylor and Z-Man side of it, so I didn't get as invested as I'd like to be. That's okay. all. Yeah, I do recognize Arn as, as doing a good performance. There was some some of the spots where like he got the wind knocked out of him and he just pulled himself along the uh, ropes, you know, because his arm's working, I guess, and his legs weren't. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and he was able to do a tag, you know. So I guess he didn't stand out to me as much because he he was just a smart wrestler and... Everyone else I'm just paying more attention to because it's outside of their box. Actually, I think I thought of one more reason why maybe I don't like this match as you do. Does he do the spine buster on this match? I don't believe so. That's why. That's an extra point right there because it always looks amazing. Yes. <laughs> so I highlighted the, the story they were pushing that Terrence Taylor was going to come to face and break away with New York Foundation's a solo run. That uh, never happened. Aww. They um he hang around for a while doing this and they put him in a tag team with Greg Valentine. Okay. Which is not a bad thing at all. It just it, the whole story is just kind of abandoned basically. That's too uh, bad because they like I said they did a really good job I thought of building to a face turn here. They could have used this very effectively. Uh, as far as Z-Man goes, between this and the previous show and this, we've basically seen the the full apex of his uh, career <laughs> trajectory. Just I, you know not very negative, but it's as far as actual results we have. Yeah. In the build-up to this show, the World Six-Man titles have been reestablished, and it was, it's him and two other people, I forget who it is, Big Josh and Dustin Rhodes or something like that, I might be wrong exact number, but it's like November, so about a month before this show, 
They decide, eh, we don't need these World 6 mentals anymore and just get rid of them. Aw. He didn't get any bigger than what we've seen before. JR and Tony go over the people that have qualified so far and talk about the potential of getting Rick versus Scott Steiner tonight. We go back to Eric and company, and Missy Hyatt says whatever name she just drew is great. <laughs> Eric, I think, says, oh, I'm going to hold on to this one for a moment. <laughs> it's just like it's a weird bit. Is it like a picture of the person? He just, like, I don't really know. Likes... I don't know. Assuming that the first name I'm going to list is the one that they saw, I agree that it's great because the first person that they announce is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. He'll be teaming with Todd Champion versus Cactus Jack and Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker. Parker starts to stand up before his name is called, actually. <laughs> well, there's only 16 other people it could have been. You know, he's pretty yeah, sure it's going to be him. Yeah. Hey, they always stand at attention. That's true, yeah, yeah. true, true, true. Abdullah the Butcher takes offense not being Cactus Jack's partner, and he beats the ever-loving heck out of Parker in the locker room, ramming him into lockers and smashing him with chairs and a broom. Jack celebrates as he sees Abdullah coming down the ramp with some kind of feathered stick, but all the refs run down to tell Abdullah to go back to the locker room. He's not Cactus Jack's partner. He looks heartbroken, poor yeah. guy. When is my question? Cactus Jack, he heard who his partner was announced as, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's he's just, it's, just it's announced over the loudspeaker. Yeah. He should clearly be aware that Abdullah the Butcher is not Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker. But I guess it's easy to confuse him. Yeah, yeah. Jack goes into the match without a partner. Poor Buddy Lee Parker is coming out on the ramp just as Abdullah is being sent back to the locker room. So Abdullah beats the heck out of him with a stick, knocks him off the ramp to the floor, and finally goes backstage, leaving the corpse of Parker lying. The Cactus and Abdullah thing, they're strong heels. They were used by Lex Luger to try and take out uh, Sting because Luger sees Sting as a challenger. So they're brought in essentially hitmen to take him out. Jack trades blows with Steamboat and rakes his eyes to get control. Choking Steamboat on the ropes, Jack makes really disturbing noises like a distressed pig. It's pretty creepy. Yep. Steamboat fights back, and Jack throws him over the top rope, but Steamboat skins the cat. No offense to Steamboat, but it's a little less amazing to see him do that than Bill Kazmaier. And Jack sends himself out of the ring on a missed clothesline. Steamboat dives through the ropes to tackle him down and smashes him into the railing. Back in, Steamboat lands some nice kicks and tags Todd Champion. Champion uses some more basic wrestling to keep control, but hits a really nice leg drop. Good elevation there. The fans chant for Parker as he crawls down the ramp. Jack gets free of a bear hug blessedly fast by raking Champion's eyes and throws him out, then climbs up to the second rope and hits an elbow drop all the way to the floor. These sorts of things are why Mick Foley does not walk too well these days. That is true. They keep fighting as Parker crawls through the empty first ring and finally makes it to his corner. Champion tags Steamboat, but Jack tags Parker, then throws him into the ring. Steamboat power slams Parker and climbs up top. The crowd chants for Parker as he fights to his feet, only for Steamboat to hit a crossbody for the pin. <laughs> so this one is an interesting one because it's very strong on story. Uh, obviously the Buddy Lee Parker thing is kind of is amusing because he... He has the unfortunate timing of not only being attacked twice, but also having their match conveniently be in the farthest ring, or ring two. Yes. So you can't even just crawl to the first ring. you got to crawl through the second ring to get there. <laughs> yes. So taking into account that this is essentially a handicap match with Cactus Jack, it's actually still pretty fun. Todd Champion is certainly not going to win in Wrestling Observer of the Year awards, but like, kind of like with the Tom Zink kind of thing, he's okay. 
Mm-hmm. He has a good. He has a generally good look. He just doesn't have anything super special about him. But his leg drop is really good. He has a couple yes. of slams that are good. Having him there is not a detriment. It's not you know Van Hammer, for instance. <laughs> He's the litmus test. You're either Van Hammer or you're above that, basically. I liked the Steamboat has Jack interaction. I've I've never seen Steamboat do a middle rope dive like that. Yeah, that was surprising. Because that's what Seth Rollins does all the time. I'm used to that. Which might be where he gets that from. I don't know. And the camera angle was good for that too. Like you just didn't expect it to happen. I also like that the Cactus Jack did his second rope elbow, as opposed to doing his second rope sunset flip. He started doing later. Oh god, yeah. Which is even he agrees is the worst thing he ever he ever made. And at least he hit the elbow this time, rather than true. his usual method of the guy dodging and him landing on the concrete, like knees first. Or being shoved off against the barricade, actually, yeah. as well. I find it funny, too, that he flips Parker into the ring. I know this is not how it works, but I like the idea, think the idea that that's his normal tagging strategy. He does that with Duel the Butcher. <laughs> there's a picture in the visual of that. That would be hilarious. It'd be terrifying, obviously, but it'd be hilarious. But I like that it builds up to the silly thing of this guy crawling in the ring, and then the thing you expect to happen happens. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely Cactus Jack's match, taking nothing away from Steamboat, who formed really solidly, and Todd Tampin also formed pretty well. Mm-hmm. Just going to take a second to talk about Mick Foley. He is a uh, wrestler that I actually know a bit about. I was interested in his stint in Japan, where he did nothing but crazy barbed wire yes. and inflaming things. Oh, yeah. It was nice to see him against Green Pants Guile and uh, um, Steamboat Shatterstar. <laughs> Until he did the signature Bang Bang or whatever, you know, like where he's pretending to to do that. I, I, I still don't know what persona does what, because he sometimes, towards the end of his career, he just starts blending them all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Probably legitimately, given the amount of uh, head injuries he's received. Yeah. It's, incidentally, neither one of us mentioned the fact that they referred to his Bang Bang as a double bang. <laughs> oh, yeah. commentary, which is like... That's- that's no, true. No. Don't ever say that again. Yeah. But no, uh Steamboat uh initially I thought he looked a little bit overselling and and less coordinated, but as the match went on, he I guess he warmed up a little bit and was still able to do some of the finesse that I I associate with him. Mm-hmm. That dive through the middle was executed perfectly. Uh, yeah. If not, you know, it could have been a little bit better if they did a a different camera angle, but it was a nice surprise. Mhm. I was expecting a different ending. I was hoping that, like, for some reason, you know, he'd get himself up and win, you know, just because <laughs> everyone's cheering for him and everything. I didn't think he was supposed to be a joke character or, or you know. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I will say it would have been a good surprise if, like, Todd Champion was in there. And he, like, tried to pick him up and got rolled up. That would be yeah. pretty funny. I'll give him that. Be yeah. the yeah. Horowitz wins type of thing. Yeah. I don't know if he's not a respected character or or wrestler or or what, but you know he's not a major character in WWE at this point yeah. in time. Yeah, he's really here to fill out because they had to have forty people in the matches. I thought they just had to have one military theme person on each team. <laughs> point. <laughs> it was a nice finish. Steamboat finish is always good. I'm just disappointed he didn't run around around the whole ring and do some more aerobatic stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. what he did was great, but I, it's not what I was expecting. Yeah. For me, this was more of an angle than than a match, but it was pretty fun. Cactus Jack is a good choice for this. He's a crazy enough character to fight on his own. He had a talented enough performer to make the match interesting. Steamboat got to show off some nice moves, but this definitely wasn't enough Steamboat content for me, uh, like you, John. I didn't get to see much of Champion, but what we got here was basic but decent. 
spectacular leg drop, though. The Parker angle was very funny, and the crowd clearly got in on the gag pretty fast. I do have one complaint, and that's that I think it would have fit Steamboat's character better to just not tag out until Jack actually had a partner, rather than take a numbers advantage. It feels a little weird for kind of the the very honorable hero uh, Steamboat to be like, yeah, I'll totally go (laughs) two-on-one, you know? But it's a minor complaint, and it wouldn't have fit the storyline that they were going for here. Still, I would really like to see Steamboat versus Cactus Jack as a singles match. I think that could be really fun. It didn't get as crazy as I thought it would. Yeah. It was still good. We did get weird pig squealing, so there's that. Yeah, well, that's just, that just, uh, it's like his calling card. He got his, uh, <laughs> like the, he, had, he had his, uh, tight with the, uh, cactus on the, on the side of a nice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and obviously his leopard boots as well, yeah. I did like the way he, um, headbutted him at first. Yeah, I don't know if they actually hit hands or anything, but it, it's totally in character for Cactus Jack to be like, oh, you want to get in? <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I was like, buddy! <laughs> <laughs> See, I thought both of you would have liked the fact that someone tried doing a bear hug and they got very much punished for it by Cactus Jack. Yes. So you appreciate the repercussion for that move. Yeah, Yeah, I was happy that got cancelled really, really fast. Yeah. <laughs> I was all ready to be really angry at Todd Champion, and then it's like, oh, no, it's done. Okay, I'm good with yeah. it. <laughs> you know, honestly, I didn't even make note of it, because it was done real yeah. quick, you know. It's when it when it takes the two minutes lo- looking longingly into each other's eyes while, while yelling at each other. It's just not, it doesn't do it for me. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, Cactus Jack will do plenty more in WCW, and we'll see him for a couple more shows, at least, in this run. Uh, Buddy Parker was not a big star at this point. He basically uses enhancement talent or a jobber, whichever you prefer, in both WCW and All Japan Pro Wrestling. Hmm. So you get to both sides of the, the world to constantly get beaten up by everybody else. His bigger contribution is later becoming one of the lead trainers at the power plant. So a lot of people that will be very big later on, such as Goldberg, will go through him. Okay. We go back to JR and Tony, and they note that Abdullah has prevented his buddy Jack from getting to Battle Bowl, and then throw back to Eric and company. Our next match is Sting and Abdullah the Butcher versus Flyin' Brian Pillman and beautiful Bobby Eaton. Uh, Abdullah looks inordinately happy as he basically prances towards the locker room door, as his name is called. Cactus Jack comes back in, and he seems cool with everything. He didn't want him Battle Bowl anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even he realizes there's no stakes in this show. So yeah. Yes, yeah. Obviously, as I mentioned before, Sting and Dula Butcher had some bad moments along Cactus Jack between them. He uses Hitman to take him out, and they played a part, anyways and Sting losing his U.S. title to Rick Rude, and as part of the angle, again, that Luger is afraid of Sting and doesn't want to fight him. Sting, sadly, has no sparkly jacket tonight, but he does make up for it with awesome America face paint. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Abdullah comes down the ramp and gives a big smile and waves at Sting, but he immediately uses his stick to beat the heck out of Sting. There's one guy in the crowd with a Sting is dead sign, who's quite happy about that. Jerk. You really didn't like Dune, I guess. <laughs> Pillman charges down and makes the save, and uses Abdullah's stick against him, but Eaton saves Abdullah. So Abdullah and Pillman brawl at ringside as Eaton gets Sting into the ring. 
Sting and Eaton go back and forth, but every time that Sting gets the upper hand, Abdullah interferes against his own partner, at one point even jabbing Sting with a pencil stolen from the announcers. Pillman attacks Abdullah whenever Sting needs help, and the announcers compliment him for prioritizing Sting's safety over going to Battle Bowl. The camera totally misses Pillman managing to body slam Abdullah. They do at least catch his monster diving body press to Abdullah, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Late in the match, Eaton tries to tag Pillman, but Pillman refuses. Eaton tags Abdullah instead, and Sting is clearly up for that fight, but ref Mike Atkins won't allow it. We get a scary spot as Sting flips Eaton out of an abdominal stretch into an attempted tombstone pile driver. Mm. But Eaton struggles, and Sting loses his balance and falls, nearly dropping Eaton right on his skull. Eaton is thankfully okay, but that looks scary. I think that it was supposed to be that Eaton would struggle long enough that Abdullah could get in there and stop the move, but either Abdullah was late or Sting couldn't hold on with Eaton squirming around. But yeah, it looks terrifying. It's weird because Abdullah is known for his lightning-fast speed. (laughs) You would have really expected to be quicker on that. Pillman fights with Abdullah again, but gets hustled out of the ring by Atkins, so Cactus Jack runs in with a stick. Abdullah holds Sting, but Sting escapes and Jack nails Abdullah. Sting dropkicks Jack, and Jack flees, while Sting climbs up top and lands a crossbody onto Eaton for the pin. The count looked pretty fast. <laughs> Sting gets the heck out of the ring, sparing a grateful look for Pillman. Jack and Abdullah brawl at the side of the ramp as security guards try to break them up, and mostly just get beat up themselves. The end of a beautiful friendship. Yeah. So you are saying before, the previous match, that it was more of an angle than a match. For mm-hmm. me, this is that match instead, yeah. I would say. Because I thought there was enough action in the last match to recover for that, whereas this was often a sort of start-and-stop thing because of a duel interfering or Pillman not wanting to team with his partner. So for me, that took away from the match to a lot of degree that it, even when they're sort of working together, it's, it's a lot of fighting on the outside. And there's a lot of action they're getting, but it's just fighting before the actual match starts. Mm-hmm. It says something that this is, this is only an all-right-stink performance. Yes. Because the bar for Sting is pretty high, so when it's not really, really good, like with, fortunately, the last arcade match with him and Flair <laughs> with a really ill-fitting mask, it's notable to me when it's not that quality anymore. The whole thing was just kind of really weird booking. I get the idea is that they wanted extra tough odd for Sting, but I feel like they could have done like a straight match where it wasn't broken down so much, mm-hmm. and the duel thing wasn't done so much. Because for me, it's hard to hold the match structure together because the way it's done. Yeah. It seems that I'm the only one that believes in the purely random nature of this lottery. (laughs) I I look at this match as sort of a continuation of the last one. Because Mm -hmm. we have Abdullah and Cactus Jack in in both of them. And uh, obviously, they don't know who's... (laughs) They just know they want to be partners. Yes. (laughs) And I do think this is sort of a a teaser for Sting that we see him struggle and we see him succeed, basically do a fair bit of wrestling on the side. And and the camera angles did not do any uh, service to them this time, Mm -hmm. especially when they're doing moves against Abdullah. But by and large, you know, it it was interesting. I I was actually surprised to see Cactus show up. So... Mm -hmm. Good outcome, <laughs> and you're done. <laughs> yeah, he's out. He's he's they, when they're holding his hand, he's literally like running. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to get out of the ring. 
Pretty much, yeah. This was a really, really weird match. <laughs> like you were saying, now, like the last one, this is much more of an angle than anything else. The actual match is really basic. Sting and Eaton do some fine work together, but like you guys were saying, they can't get anything particularly complicated going because the plot keeps interrupting them. You know, Abdullah will get in there anytime anything kind of starts to happen. So the match just doesn't seem to build any kind of momentum. It was interesting as a story, and it was interesting as just a, a spectacle of this guy's own tag team partner keeps attacking him, you know. But I, I did appreciate the focus on Pillman and what he was giving up by helping Sting. Sure. But it all fell a little bit flat in the end. This is a case where it would have helped if there was a promo. If Sting cut a promo afterwards thanking Pillman for his help or something like that. I just felt like it needed more resolution to the storyline that they were going for. As it is, I do think it gets across the chaos of the Lethal Lottery, but it would have been stronger if we hadn't had another match with that exact purpose. I would have liked them to pick either this match or the last match to do that, not both. I like the visual that Bula is like super happy and friendly as he's coming out for attacking Sting. It reminds me of that old viral video of the lady comes back to Africa after being gone for like 10 years or whatever it is and the lion she raises the cub runs to meet her but it's, that one turns out good just to be okay. clear because it's, it's like they haven't seen each other in 10 years and then they, the lion ups and starts hugging her so picturing that but obviously taking a Abdullah yeah. taped violent turn to the end but I don't know why that reminds me of that what it does <laughs> yeah I, I think he did that part really well I, I was actually fooled briefly when, he, yeah. when he's coming down there I'm like oh he's just crazy and gonna be friends with Sting, and then he's like, oh no, he's going to brutally assault him, okay. I hope that Cactus Jack and Abdullah get over their differences. Pillman, well, I didn't get a whole lot through here than Bias and Abdullah mostly in-camera shot, which was generally impressive. Um, his focus for, is the like, heavyweight division at this point. Having lost his title to Liger at a house show, he has a rematch coming at the end Super Brawl, which as I recall being a really good match. As for Bobby Eaton, he would hang around um, mostly being a solid guy. You could sort of throw in tag matches or singles matches. But his match, his uh, run rather, would end rather abruptly when he was fired by Bill Watts. Okay. A name we will start to hear many more times as we go on with these shows. Yes. He comes in next year, I think, yes. as the head of WCW for a time, right? Correct. Early 92, he's, come, he's brought in, yeah, restructuring and everything. Yes. Tony proposes that the next time we hold Battle Bowl, we have a mental health test to not let psychotic people in. <laughs> that might be a good idea for the company in general. Mm -hmm. We go back to Eric, and in just about the fakest way possible, he says he's glad he wasn't down in the ring for that. He's not particularly believable at this point. He no. gets better. <laughs> he's definitely a TV executive at this point. Yes. It's really the sales and marketing guy that they've just stuck on camera. Mm -hmm. We draw our next names, and we get Rick Steiner and the Diamond Stud, replaced due to injury by the Night Stalker. Aww. Yeah. Versus Big Van Vader and Mr. Hughes. So we just went from Scott Hall as the Diamond Stud to the Night Stalker. That is a big dang downgrade. <laughs> Mr. Hughes is the former big cat. Yes. Uh, also, uh, Vader comes out with no mask at all, which just feels weird. He is yeah. never coming out without a mask. 
I mean, I know it always ends up falling off midway through matches anyway, but he usually comes out with it at least. Yeah, no mask. He's relatively clean shaven, I believe, as well. Yeah. And he doesn't have his amazing helmet. Mastodon helmet, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like his hairdo. V- Vader's? Yeah, it's like a, a ram jam. <laughs> he was inspired by uh, Hawk. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Legion of Doom, yeah, yeah. Basically. Yep, there you go. Gotta get your Road Warrior somewhere. Quoth JR, the Night Stalker is no Scott Steiner. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Oh. Rick and Vader start, with Rick grinning at him as the crowd barks. Vader just knocks Rick around and lays in the punishment, but Rick counters a charge with a Steiner line to take the big man down, then hits an amazing belly to belly suplex. A Steiner line takes Vader outside, and Rick follows with a dive for some brawling. Rick struggles on a more vertical suplex to bring Vader back in, but he guts through it. With Rick exhausted, Vader brings in Hughes to beat Rick up, but Rick fights back and manages a belly-to-belly suplex on Hughes. The announcers point out that Rick doesn't seem sure about tagging Night Stalker, but after Rick and Hughes collide and both go down, Night Stalker tags in on his own. He knocks Hughes down with a top-rope clothesline, but Vader sneaks in a tag. Hughes charges Night Stalker, but Night Stalker dodges, and Rick dumps Hughes onto the top turnbuckle. Vader clotheslines Night Stalker down, and Rick, seemingly unaware of either tag, bulldogs Hughes. They aren't the legal men, so ref Nick Patrick won't count. It's a good call by Nick Patrick. Yeah, he's there, very... Definitely. He's, he's yeah. on the ball. He's honorable. He's guys, yeah. accurate, yeah. Vader splashes Night Stalker for the pin. I guess I should note there that Vader splashes Night Stalker, and Night Stalker sits up a little bit, and darn near gets his neck broken. Yeah. Because he clearly has no idea how to take the splash properly. <laughs> no. Ugh, it was terrifying. Yeah, basically he took a slam and like started to get up like he was going to look and see where Vader was. But Vader's about six inches above his head at that point. <laughs> yes. To fall on him. Oh. I think Vader put his arms down pretty quick. He did the move in the best way he possibly could to prevent Nightstalk from breaking his neck. But yeah, Vader weighs 400 pounds plus. You do not want to take that on your neck. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's definitely a tale of two people for me. That would be Rick Steiner and Vader. That first suplex is amazing to watch. Mm-hmm. Vader just floats over like it's nothing. And it's like, it simply surprised me that he did it so well. The second one is obviously a little scarier, but it's sort of a testament to the strength and technique of both men that they managed to not horribly mess that up. <laughs> yes. Poor Vader is like halfway up and supporting himself on the ropes to keep from falling out. And Vader and Steiner rather has to sort of gut through the rest of the move and they cover that as best they can. Yeah. With the second one, it's a vertical suplex he's going for. Yes. Which is a lot more like lift over the head. With the first one, it's a belly to belly. So he can do it faster and he doesn't have to do like the full supporting the entire weight right. over my head at any point, really. It's a, it, it's a quicker cooperative version of that move. Yeah. Which is why it's easier to do. I definitely appreciated that they kept the nice talker out of the match until the end because I was really worried that I'd be pulled away from seeing Vader or seeing Rick Steiner and seeing him instead. There's still too much Mr. Hughes, even though it's not a lot of Mr. Hughes. A little Mr. Hughes goes too far for me. (laughs) (laughs) He was in arguably the worst match on the last show, and it was, what, 80 seconds long? That says something about it. The two scary spots for the suplex and then the splash... I was worried they'd pull me out of it, but they I liked enough of the match to sort of get around that. I'm glad that Vader 
got it through because I really did want to see Vader do more. I'm glad mm. to see that. I I disagree. I did. I don't. I don't mind Mr. Hughes. The only thing I'm remembering I thought was funny is like one of the one of the few times I chuckled while watching this <laughs> was like when they said he fell like a giant redwood. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he does like you know this nice little like spin and he just like does have a pirouette and then falls down, which I thought was funny. <laughs> At least they're having fun with it. Steiner, even more than Vader, uh, I enjoyed watching Steiner during this one. Obviously, those were the two big names here. Night Stalker, I don't know his background or anything. Night Stalker's old character is that he came out with an axe, which he didn't actually swing at anybody like an axe. Usually career ending. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He reminds me of El Gigante in some ways. Just he he is a giant character. You know, mm-hmm. he's he's a little bit slow, lumbering, can get some things done. I didn't expect much from him, and frankly, I, I was just more interested in, in Steiner throwing people around, so But I don't hate him. I don't hate him. <laughs> Yeah, well, this was Rick Steiner versus Vader. It was really good. Yes. Vader's big, heavy blows look amazingly real, I'm guessing because they probably mostly are. And Rick's ability to just fling a guy that huge around was absolutely incredible. Yeah, the one suplex looked a little dicey, but the rest of his moves this match were great. Rick versus Hughes was a little bit less fascinatingly brutal, but it was still fine. Hughes put on a pretty decent show tonight overall. No, yeah, it wasn't terrible. The ending was perhaps a bit overcomplicated. I'm not sure why we needed Rick to not realize that he and Hughes weren't legal as an added bit. But, uh, you know, it worked all right, I guess, aside from Night Stalker nearly getting his full neck broken. Night Stalker was barely present, but what I saw of him was not really promising. Overall, a really nice showcase for Rick, Steiner, and Vader, but really short. It does make you wonder how different it would have been with Diamond Stud in there instead. Would they have done the same outline, or would Stud have been involved more than Night Stalker? I would figure he'd probably be involved more than that. Yeah. But obviously it's hard to say for sure. So in the upcoming months, there's a main story going on and a backstage story going on. The main story is that they're using Scott Steiner more in singles matches on Saturday night. Uh, They started the story where if you win three matches in a row on the Saturday night, you would win a, a purse of like $20,000 or something. It's a neat idea, honestly. Obviously, not that remembered. Someone backstage decides Scott Steiner is a, is a more marketable person, so they're constantly trying to pull him apart. The brothers did not agree, and when basically presented with that, they decided to leave. And generally, the man who decided they should be split was Bill Watts. <laughs> See, I go. told you so. The Night Stalker, it's a.k.a. Brian Clark, would leave WCW and wrestle elsewhere. He returned to Kilwin, California, I mean wrestle in WCW, years later. <laughs> See Richard Ramirez joke, which I can't believe that made it on the wrestling podcast, but there you go. <laughs> I mean, I had to go for it. It's my only chance to use it. Yeah. Yeah. I would have gone for Kolchak, man. Hmm. <laughs> we have another wonderful commercial coming up. Brought to you by Super Brawl 2. <laughs> yes, true. And we, again, I think all were kind of wishing that we were watching that show. Mm-hmm. Two. JR and Tony talk up that event. Then we go back to Eric and company. Our next match is Scott Steiner and Firebreaker Chip. <laughs> I love that name. Versus Johnny B. Bad and Arachnaman. And oh man, do we ever have some things to discuss here. Oh yeah. <laughs> okay. 
So first up, Johnny B. Bad. This is one of those gimmicks that just really wasn't a good idea. Let's just get this out of the way, okay? I know that the idea here is that he's imitating a specific performer, in this case, Little Richard, but this is still very much a white guy, Mark Marrow, mm-hmm. effectively dressing up as a black guy. This goes on for multiple years, and it's kind of amazing that during that time, nobody said, you know, this, this probably isn't a good idea. There had to be something else they could have done with Mark Marrow. He's actually a pretty talented in-ring performer, but yeah. Yeah, no, it, it is... It's a it, the level of of basically blackface they do does vary by show. Early on, it's way more than it is here. Yeah, it sort of evolves into slightly slightly more tame than he would normally do. But yeah, the implication is still he's just like look little Richard, who is definitely not the same ethnicity he is. Yeah, so not the best idea. You know, I'm, I think I'm just gonna leave it there. I never made the connection, but yeah. You should never portray such things. Yeah. I will say one other thing in Johnny B. Bad, which is that it's a pun on Johnny B. Good, which is not a song by Little Richard. Point. Now, Arachnaman. Where do you begin with Arachnaman? <laughs> so this is a bad idea for all different reasons. Chief among them, how in the world did WCW think that they could get away with this just by changing the colors of the Spider-Man outfit? <laughs> Brad Armstrong was put under a mask earlier in 1991 as Fantasia. Al, I think we said that that was uh, Little Richard Marley's original name last year, but I think it was Armstrong instead. Correct. Yeah, we got mixed up. Yeah. Or bad. Yeah. The character was renamed Bad Street to avoid trouble with Disney. So given that they just had to change a character to avoid legal action by Disney, how weird is it that they immediately made another copyright infringing gimmick for the same guy? <laughs> yeah. Poor Brad Armstrong. That's like, wow. Mm-hmm. What I feel is often overlooked is this gimmick briefly before either one of those, which is where he's a friendly guy throwing out candy to children called the Candyman, which clear was maybe for the Tony Todd horror movie. So he's actually just the Candyman from Willy Wonka, which again, I feel like they must have been sued over. <laughs> yeah. This poor guy keeps getting stuck with this stuff. He still has at least one more. Yeah. And also, that mask looks horrible. Yeah. You're already copying the character, so at least get the mask right. If if I worked for Marvel, I'd sue over how badly they copied Spider-Man, rather than just for copying him himself. No, yeah. Going from red and blue to neon green and purple. It's horrible. And they put the spider on top of his head. Yes. Rather than on the front of his outfit. Yes. Again, to avoid copyright, I actually thought it was the drawstrings for like... the like it, the I think it might be, Yeah. But when you see him from above, you see it's a full spider with the head and the body and the legs going over. It might be a function of something else, too, but it's designed to be a spider logo on his head, not his chest. It's so bad. So, so bad. It, it really looks like you just, like, bought a Spider-Man costume at a Halloween store and repainted it, but then lost the mask and, like, made your own going off of no picture references whatsoever. I was like, eh, good enough. <laughs> Are you implying that WSW would buy a Halloween mask and spray paint a different color and give it to somebody else? Yes. They've only done that twice before. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. Oh, and Arachnaman is, of course, from Web City. Because, of course, he is. 
<laughs> it's just this is the stuff that comes up that, that I honestly like this is so bad but these are the moments that I really love WCW where it's just like this absolute comedy of errors of making this character where like you're doing a copyrighted gimmick on a guy you've already done at least one maybe two arguably copyrighted gimmicks on and you're also doing it in the worst possible way mm-hmm. with the most horrible colors you could possibly imagine it's oh it takes real talent to be this bad at your job <laughs> oh yeah and it's all because apparently Brad Armstrong was a very talented wrestler but like Terry Taylor and other people just didn't have a certain extra oomph that you needed and especially going into the 90s when Sting is so prevalent and Luger is so vibrant and you have these bigger than life personalities coming in and they decided he wasn't good enough just being really talented but not that exciting yeah. I just don't get why they couldn't just leave him as vaguely resembling Magnum TA like he did last time we saw him. It's... No, yeah. <laughs> that seemed to be working for him. I guess they like, you know, comic books. Because <laughs> you got like a, a pseudo um, Iron Fist in this one too. I mean, I, I guess one of the outfits, I think it looks like him. <laughs> no, I can see that, yeah. Yeah. Now we have an actual match to discuss too. Yeah, I know, I know. I thought we just did. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Felt like it, right? JR, for some reason, says that we're going to see more continuity than in any match we've seen tonight. I guess maybe because it's four faces, so there won't be disagreements from that standpoint? I'm not sure what he means, really. That's certainly his point, yeah. He also compliments WCW's marketing, since lots of fans are wearing Starcade shirts. Tony says that Bad has to be considered a top contender to Jushin Liger's light heavyweight title, and adds that the same could be said of Arachnaman. No, Tony, no. But it's nice of you to try. Yeah. Bad and Chip have a quick exchange and challenge each other to box, but Ref Randy Anderson warns them to keep their fists open. Chip asks the crowd if they want to see a fight, so Bad sucker punches him in the gut and batters him around the ring. JR tries calling Bad's elbow drop a power drive elbow like Muta's, but it's nowhere near as awesome as that. No. Chip finally counters a bad whip with a spring off the turnbuckle into a crossbody for two, and we get tags to Arachnaman and Scott. I have a feeling that this isn't going to go like Spider-Man versus Bonesaw. No, <laughs> it is not. Scott hits power move after power move on Arachnaman, and easily counters his speed, finally sending him over the top rope with a Steiner line. Bad does little better, hitting a few punches before Scott nails a double-leg takedown that JR points out as Boris Spinebuster and runs bad chest-first into the top turnbuckle. <laughs> Tony says, uh, he's not just a bad man, he's a hurting badly man. JR kind of pauses for a moment and then finally says, is that like a bone in his cap? <laughs> <laughs> or like a feather in his head, Tony replies. What does that even mean? <laughs> also, that is an actual thing people do. Put feathers in your hair. Yeah. So... I think Tony's reaching a little bit tonight at points. Back to Chip, and things get more even until a strange spot where Chip just kind of holds onto Bag's legs as the ref counts, forcing him to let go. Arachnaman starts using his speed to stay ahead of Chip and dodges a charge to send Chip over the turnbuckle into the ring post of the other ring. Pretty cool spot there. Mm-hmm. Chip redeems himself with a cool slide under the bottom rope into a pin attempt for two. A later Boston Crab leads to a few smooth pin attempt exchanges. 
Odd bit as Bad tags in just to grab a chin lock, but we go right back to Arachnaman. Crisscross, but Chip tags Scott, and Scott nails a Steiner line and a Tilt-A-Whirl slam before Bad runs in and gets slammed too. Chip fights off Bad and Arachnaman kicks Scott on a Frankensteiner attempt, but gets caught coming off the top rope. Scott hits a massive overhead belly-to-belly suplex for the pin. So if you can get past all the silly outfits and gimmick, and quite frankly, all of the neon in this match. <laughs> there is lots of it. As much as I love Scott Steiner, his outfits at this point are very neon. If you can get past that, there is some good action here. Um, they've been trying to push this story, as they mentioned a little in commentary, that Johnny B. Bad, when he first came in, had a manager, so that he was a bad guy. But he broke away from that and started going more to his boxing, which is a legitimate thing Mark Murray actually did. He was a Golden Gloves boxer, I believe. Right, yeah. So he's putting that into his character, which thankfully gets away a little away from the stuff like Tutti Frutti and other stuff that is just weird for so many reasons. Problem is, for me, is that Firebreaker Chip is definitely the weak link in the Stars and Stripe tag team of Todd Champion. And Todd Champion is obviously not the highest bar to compare against, so that's not great for him. He doesn't really mess up a move other than almost face-planting himself on that middly good set of crossbody he does. He definitely over-shoots uh, it a little bit <laughs> and almost, yeah, smacks his face on the ring, which I think even Dara mentions that nearly hurt himself more as well. Yeah. Arachnid Man, for his terrible outfit gimmick aside, is still Brian Armstrong, so his general wrestling performance is really good. He has the one hiccup where he clearly sees Scott Steiner um, the last bit of the crisscross, and then runs anyways. Yeah. He half stops, looks at him, then runs again. And is, <laughs> then it's surprised when this giant man in neon appears in his path. Spider senses didn't work too well there. Uh, what do you mean, arachna senses? No. No, okay. I don't. <laughs> okay, just, just checking. I do like Scott doing the belly-belly suplex for the win. I kind of thought it would be the side one. Um, that looks generally looks more like a strong and packful like, body slam one. Mm-hmm. But you get the interesting comparison of Rick Steiner doing that exact same move to Vader early in the show and him doing it to Arachnaman, which is kind of funny. Scott drew the easier card tonight, I think. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. The match isn't bad. It's just it's just so much silliness and so much stuff that's just kind of okay, when basically when Scott's not in it. It doesn't quite elevate as much as I would hope. Mm-hmm. It's, just, it's good porn for Scott Steiner and other people involved, but it's not as good as it could be. Okay, there's a little bit, there's a lot to unpack, but <laughs> sure. I'm going to overlook the fact that they look like like an alternate version of the band that does YMCA. Those <laughs> people. Sans Steiner, Steiner would have to get some other outfit. I was very surprised at the lack of Steiner in this match. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of points where they hold a submission hold for a while or, you know, run and do laps. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Gotta get your steps like, in, man. Yeah, so I, I know. <laughs> I just was not expecting him to, to stay out. When he came in, you know, there was a little bit of revival in action. I didn't mind Marrow's uh, look like MMA boxing kind of strikes and everything. It looked, they looked clean and, you know, yeah. it had added mm-hmm. some energy to the match. Arachnidude was able to pull off some, some moderate skills here and there, but it all seemed like it was in slow motion or very measured out. Uh, which I do not expect that friendly uh, wall climber. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it was nice to see Scott finish out the match, but it, I have this feeling that it could have been done a lot quicker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found this perfectly acceptable, but not really anything more than that. 
Scott Steiner's clearly the star of the show when he's in the match. He has the most impressive moves. But Chip did have a few creative spots. And while Arachnaman as a character is laughable, Brad Armstrong, the wrestler, is still quite good. He's just hobbled by the gimmick. It focuses his story on high-flying or acrobatics, and Armstrong, when we last saw him, was more of a smooth mat wrestler and counter wrestler. Mm-hmm. Bad was probably the weakest performer here, but he's actually only about a year into his career, so considering that, he did well enough and his punches looked really good. Uh, not a surprise given his history, as you know, Adele. Yes. I did know kind of a surprising amount of rest holds, as you were talking about, John. Considering this is a tag match, you'd really think they'd just tag out, but... Or come in and kick. Yeah, they they use those quite a lot in this match. Things still never slow down for that long. So it ended up decent enough, but yeah, this was pretty disappointing. I think the breast holds are on account of bad and, to a certain extent, chip even. They're not experienced enough and they need more of a, okay, what are we doing next? The pause and reset. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Scott can handle himself pretty well. And obviously, Brad Armstrong, his terrible outfit aside, is a very complex wrestler at this point. Yeah, again, I feel like I'd really like to see Scott Steiner versus Brad Armstrong, not Scott Steiner versus Arachnium, Scott Steiner versus Brad Armstrong, because yeah. uh, I think that could be quite an interesting match between the two of them. Yeah, what's funny is that they mention Arachnium being a strong contender for the light heavyweight title. That didn't happen, obviously, because you know, Marvel got really quick on that one. Yes. But Brad Armstrong actually is very connected to that division later on. Yes, yeah. So he were, they were half right. As he should be. Absolutely. Johnny Bad, this is the beginning part of his career, and as I noted, he, he stays around for WWE for a long time. The next year is kind of interesting because they initially start pulling away from the over-the-top Johnny Bad stuff, and they really help promote his boxing. So the way they do that is constantly putting him in matches on Clash, the pay-per-views, where they're treated like the legitimate boxing contests. So, of course, he loses every single one of them. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's a way to build a guy up. And as you noted, Brad Armstrong will thankfully be moved from this gimmick and actually have a pretty nice um, chance to actually perform the light heavyweight title division. You know, things don't long-term don't work out for it, but short-term, it's actually better for him. Are we getting close to the America jacket? I believe so. Ah, oh, yes. That's my favorite Brad Armstrong look. <laughs> Absolutely. We go back to JR, who says that we're down to the final four, and it's not even March. I get it. We go back to Eric and company for the final draws. So our final tag match is Ron Simmons and Thomas Rich, another York Foundation member. Correct. Versus Steve Armstrong and PN News. Amusingly, PN News seems rather surprised that he's been drawn, though Tony points out that he's not sure why, since PN News was literally the last person available to be drawn, and it had to be him next. Yeah. Just a little bit clueless there. Tony notes that Tracy Smothers, Steve Armstrong's similarly attired partner, is still backstage dressed to wrestle, and he wonders if he might interfere during the match. JR agrees that it's possible. I do have to say, as they come out, I kind of like the bearded look for Thomas Rich. It's a little more distinctive than the last time that we saw him, I think. My only issue is I think his overall look doesn't feel like the I'm part of this big business group organization thing. True, yeah. It just feels weird to me. It's a good generic heel look, but it doesn't really look like businessman type of... Yeah. Yeah. Like everyone else had a, had that look down at the top, and it's just him. Yeah. Hmm. 
Simmons and PN News both seem rather disappointed with their partners, and Rich asks Simmons to trust him and looks for a high five. Simmons declines, but agrees to start off for their team. Armstrong ignores Simmons and mugs for the crowd, so Simmons taps him on the shoulder to get his attention, intentionally avoiding actually striking Armstrong there. Mm -hmm. Good face, he makes sure that he's in the match first, but Mm -hmm. shows his dissatisfaction. Simmons hits a big military press and dominates, but things get more even after a tag to Rich. They go back and forth, and Armstrong eventually gets advantage and holds Rich on a tag to News, but News makes him let Rich go. Rich versus News goes about like Graham versus Kazmire, with News just throwing Rich around the ring, and the crowd chants for Simmons, so Rich obliges, and then tells the crowd to shut up. <laughs> Simmons and News high-five as Tony tells us that they're friends and they've tagged before. Simmons breaks clean in the corner, but News hits punches on his turn. They trade charging at each other and big power moves, and News tags Armstrong as Rich and Simmons argue over tagging. Rich accepts the tag after Simmons gets Armstrong dazed, and Rich uses his wrist tape to choke Armstrong, but Armstrong reverses and uses the tape to choke Rich instead. Rich flees and tags Simmons, who looks at him in pure disgust. (laughs) Armstrong attacks while Simmons is arguing, but Simmons just takes him down with a big clothesline. Rich tagged back in, and he hits fist drops and knee drops to Armstrong, but tries to tag right back out and is denied by Simmons. Armstrong takes back over and runs him into PN News' knee, so... Elegante is the only face that has a problem with doing that, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's how. News and Armstrong trade off against Rich. He nearly escapes a few times, including dodging an Armstrong stinger splash, of all things. Yeah. But tries to get in another hit and loses track of his corner and keeps getting beaten down some more. Armstrong knocks him to the apron and stands on his neck, which brings Simmons and News into protest. After a lax Armstrong pin, Rich tags Simmons. Simmons kicks Armstrong in the gut, power slams him, and slams News. Armstrong charges, but Simmons hits his awesome spine buster and gets the pin. This is definitely a great showcase for Ron Simmons. It's not a whole lot for everybody else, though, which is kind of a shame. Steve Armstrong definitely has less stalling and more action than his tag partner, which is good. Yes. It's also incidentally weird that the show is bookended by Young Pistols in tag matches. Point. I did not think of that until just now, which is weird. I feel a little bad for Ron Simmons because at this point they are heavily pushing him, as they will continue to do for quite a while. I think he has to be in this match to add the name value to it. Mm-hmm. So he basically left with whoever is still there, which is kind of the way it worked for him, fortunately. One half of a low-ranking tag team on their way out, and Thomas Rich, who's not the most important former on the show, and PN News has his own issues to deal with. I'm glad that he's there in the sense that he definitely elevates this more than would have been if they'd swapped out, say, Terrence Taylor for him and put him somewhere else. That that could have been a worse match, but I was kind of hoping for more with Ron Simmons, but it's just, he can only do so much. Mm -hmm. It was a really interesting match in that it was not interesting to me at all. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Ouch. And well, it was. I mean, like, you know, everyone everyone had, like, a, a few moments in, in the spotlight, and then, like, they just, uh, I don't know. It, it, this is not the commentary I want to be giving, but I think it is appropriate for this match. <laughs> I'm giving this level of commentary. I was just not, I was just not impressed with anything specifically, other than this is the first time I've ever seen arm tape used as, as a throttling or, or a garrote. 
I will give them that for creativity. But other than that, was it was it almost worth it for that uh, spinebuster at the end? Well, yeah, it was, it was a good finishing, but that's about it. Honestly, I was zoning out um, even on the second rewatch of this. I, there was a point when I was watching the original ones. I think this was the match that I fell asleep during. It's ten tag matches in. It was kind of hitting me like that too. It's like this has been going on for a long time with all the same type of match and this has to do something to stand out and it really doesn't Mm -hmm. was that kind of how you were feeling on it absolutely yeah this felt this felt pretty slow to me we had several pauses as simmons and rich argued or armstrong just kind of stalled not as much as his partner but still some Those were relatively short and more story-based than in our first match, but the action overall just felt like it had a slower pace. They weren't stopping, they weren't using lots of rest holds, but they just didn't move quickly. When Simmons was in, things picked up quite a bit, and he definitely had the best showing for himself with some impressive power spots and good intensity. Nobody else really stood out, though. I did like the disagreements between faces and heels on the teams, but it was weakened a bit by News being willing to take cheap shots on his own. Kind of lose the moral superiority when you also club your buddy on a break. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a bad match, but for the final tag match on the show, it needed to be better and more interesting than this. And Simmons did great at the very last, what, 20 seconds of the match? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it looked smooth, you know, it looked powerful and you know it was really snappy but i could have used that intensity at any point yeah (laughs) before i think the one other compliment i will give it is i feel like thomas rich has much much more character here than he did the last time that we saw him he was kind of this bland baby face type of thing where in this it felt like he was it felt like he's a guy that enjoyed the heel role more yeah this is just not what we needed for the final tag match of the show you maybe could have put this earlier in the show and maybe put that why well, I didn't like the, ma- the match as much. You could, I would see more storyline pros putting the, the Sting Abdullah thing as the last match. Yeah. Because that would further emphasize the Sting is fighting uphill in this these scenarios to get where he's got to go. I could see that, yeah. You could throw Steiner in this one. He might actually got more action. Yeah, Simmons versus Steiner would have been pretty cool. But yet, without changing who's in what match... The placement of the match is where this way yeah. suffers. Yeah. Because it doesn't have any big wowing things to do. Hitting any of the better matches and put them here, the one with Liger and Kazmaier, for instance, put that at the end, you'd have something more interesting at the end of the show. Yeah, if you have this in match two or three, I don't mind it, really. If you have this as match number 10, I'm just like, oh my gosh, no. Yeah. This is this is too slow. Absolutely. So, as I noted at the beginning of the episode... Steve Armstrong with his partner is out of the company in January. P News is a different, more interesting story. A few months before this show, P News was wrestling on a house show against an older wrestler uh, named the Angel of Death. Dave Sheldon, who was one of the candidates for the Black Scorpion before, right? Correct. So he's wrestling Dave Sheldon on this show, and P News's finishing move is the running splash when the Vader does. So obviously the way you do that is one, you don't sit up while the guy's doing it to you. That's a given, apparently, you would think. But for the person doing the move, you aim for the chest and just blast them on the chest so it's the least impactful. You knock the win out of them, but that's it. PN News 
for some reason misjudge his distance and his splash and splash the guy's knees. His whole body weight in this guy's legs. <sighs> so yeah, that guy was injured and out of wrestling for about a year. As a result, they quickly pulled PN News out of the feud he was currently going on with, with stunning Steve Austin. Thankfully in time for Austin, didn't happen to him, you know? Yeah. They pulled him mostly to house shows on Saturday night, except when they needed four people to fill a battle bowl, and suddenly he's, a, he's available. Yeah. So not surprisingly, he does not stay along very long after this. Got a lot of new faces tonight that we're never going to see again in a Starcade, basically. Yeah. It's a weird night. Totally. Indeed. <sighs> this is such a bad show. <laughs> Oh, okay, all right. But as okay. they say, the best is yet to come. Oh, did they say that? Okay. Uh, one one more thing. All right, we go back to the announcers. And JR and Tony discuss the qualifications for Battle Bowl and whether Luger might still be paying Abdullah the Butcher since he kept going after Sting. They go over the rules for Battle Bowl, and we're going to get to those in a moment. And they talk over whether the biggest men or the fastest men will have the advantage. Tony points out that Sting has a lot of his enemies in Battle Bowl, and he's going to need to watch out. We go to Eric and company, and he thanks Missy Hyatt and Magnum for their help, and then throws to Gary Michael Capetta for the announcements. So it's time for the final match, Battle Bowl. So here's the rules. We've got two rings. Twenty men start out in the first ring. Wrestlers are eliminated from ring one by being thrown over the ropes to ring two. No other sides of Ring 1 matter. Wrestlers can start fighting immediately in Ring 2 as soon as they're in there. Wrestlers are eliminated from Ring 2 by being thrown over the top rope to the floor. The side of Ring 2 that leads back to Ring 1 doesn't matter. When one wrestler remains in Ring 1, he gets to rest while Ring 2 sorts itself out. When one wrestler remains in Ring 2, Ring 1's finalist and Ring 2's finalist get back into Ring 1 and fight. And now a wrestler is eliminated by being thrown over the top rope of ring one to the floor. <laughs> it's so simple. Yeah. So these are obviously really complicated, but also something occurred to me. Mm-hmm. So this is basically double elimination, right? Yes. Yes. You're thrown out of ring one, you get in ring two, and you're actually eliminated by being thrown out of ring two, right? Yes. Correct. Unless you're the guy that won ring one. In that case, in the final stage, you can just be dumped out of Ring 1 to lose. Your reward for winning Ring 1 is only having to be eliminated once to lose. That's a fair point, yeah. (laughs) But you get to rest. You get to rest, yeah. So there is that. And I guess we can kind of treat it as a separate match of sorts at that point. But it still seems kind of like a cruddy reward. You can almost call it the match beyond. (laughs) <laughs> and and since like in theory like someone could be tossed you know when they're still sorting out ring two someone could be tossed from ring two to ring one not be disqualified and just start fighting the guy that's in ring one who's supposed to be resting point that that could happen as well yeah that really should have come up at some point yeah we don't know <laughs> all right so it's time for a battle bowl The wrestlers come out with what looked like some malfunctioning pyro, as only one sparkler actually goes off. The 20 men participating come down the ramp. So we've got Big Van Vader, Marcus Alexander Bagwell, Jimmy Jam Garvin, The Natural Dustin Rhodes, Bill Kazmaier, Jushin Thunder Liger, Stunning Steve Austin, Richard Morton, Todd Champion, Abdullah the Butcher, Firebreaker Chip, 
Thomas Rich, who comes out grinning like a fool, <laughs> the all-American Ron Simmons, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, uh, the cameraman nearly falls off the ramp as he's trying to film Ricky, and Ricky gives him a look like, you, you okay there, man? <laughs> it's just so in awe of Ricky Steamboat. <laughs> yeah, I guess Loses so. This is footing. Mr. Hughes, Scott Steiner, Lex Luger, accompanied by Harley Race, as the stage pyro finally actually starts working, Rick Rude, accompanied by Paul E. Dangerously, Double A. Arn Anderson, and Sting. All 20 men start in the first ring and brawl, and it's pretty darn near impossible to follow. Yes. But I'm going to do my best here. We get a whole lot of spots starting out where wrestlers struggle to dump each other out of ring one to the floor, even though that doesn't matter in this match. We get Kazmaier and Rude trying to dump Hughes, Hughes and Vader dumping Kazmaier to the ramp, Vader twice gets Steamboat out onto the ramp, once via clothesline from outside and once by military press. Both look awesome, but both don't matter. Champion and Rich fight on the ropes. Kazmaier and Champion try to dump Luger out, and more, all on the sides that really don't mean anything. They're all used to normal battle royales. I'll say one thing on the Vader-Steamboat thing. I think it's less that they didn't know the rules, which is they wanted, like, three feet of space to do their own stuff. Yes, probably. So they fought to the ramp, like, we're going to fight here for a while, let's do stuff. That makes sense. Yeah. Tony makes a fairly good point that if you want to be the last man in ring one, you should really just stay over by the ramp. Thomas Rich gets tossed to ring two first by Todd Champion. Tony points out that Rich can rest until someone else gets in there, so it's not all bad. It doesn't take long before Bagwell gets thrown over there by Morton, though. The first time the crowd really reacts at all is Sting versus Luger, uh, as they briefly brawl. Hughes hurls Firebreaker Chip into ring two onto Bagwell, which looked pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Liger goes to ring two, care of Morton, but Morton strangely just goes ahead and follows him. Technically, Morton, or maybe even both, went through the middle rope, and therefore they shouldn't actually be eliminated, but it appears that both count. They have a quick duel, including Liger getting a catch into a power slam, a front flip senton, a moonsault, head scissors from the top rope, and a spinning wheel kick before both spill out of the ring on a Liger crossbody and are eliminated. Mr. Hughes misses a dive against Simmons and flies nearly clear into ring two. How is it that Mr. Hughes has two of the coolest spots in the match so far? <laughs> <laughs> Things start moving faster, and the cameras can't keep up with all the eliminations, so we miss Rich's elimination, and we miss why Steamboat and Anderson enter ring two. Champion and Garvin enter ring two through the middle rope, same as Morton and Liger. Steamboat ends up on the apron, but Anderson suplexes him back in, which seems like a bit of an odd choice. Rapid transitions here as Austin and Abdullah end up in ring two. Abdullah drags Kazmaier along. Garvin's eliminated by Firebreaker Chip. Simmons misses a tackle and ends up in ring two. Rhodes misses a dive and the camera misses him entering ring two. Sting and Rude brawl wildly and uh, spill over into ring two. So Vader and Luger are last in ring one. Vader beats Luger up and you can actually hear Luger selling over all the rest of the noise. Yeah, it's amazing. (laughs) It's pretty amazing. (laughs) Luger darn near flare flops after a Vader splash, but Luger gets a nice running shove slash clothesline to throw Vader into ring two. Tony notes that Luger has a big advantage now as he's able to rest. Abdullah goes out and he drags Kazmaier with him. And now we cut to three different camera angles with two in picture in picture, and it's hard to decide what exactly to watch, and half the time it's showing the same thing anyway from slightly different angles. Yep. We get rapid eliminations as Anderson goes out via Rhodes dropkick, Rhodes goes out dumped by Austin, Hughes and Simmons fall out together, Austin dumps Bagwell out, 
Sting and Steamboat double clothesline Vader out, and we seized using the two camera angles just in time to miss Scott Steiner's elimination. <laughs> exactly the moment when it could have helped, it goes away. It's WCW, what do you expect? Yeah. So we're down to Sting, Steamboat, Austin, and Rude in ring two. And they team up, Sting and Steamboat versus Austin and Rude. We get some pretty cool spots. Austin and Rude try to hurl Sting and Steamboat into each other, but Steamboat dives to the mat, and Sting leaps up and clotheslines Rude. Steamboat and Sting beat up Austin and Rude, respectively, and Sting hurls Rude into Austin. Rude reverses a second attempt, but Sting just stinger splashes Austin. Later, with Sting dazed, Steamboat fights Austin and Rude. Austin grabs him, and Rude tries a clothesline, but Steamboat ducks, and Rude knocks Austin out of the ring. Rude throws Steamboat over, but he skins the cat back in and grabs Rude with his legs, pulling him over and out. He tries to skin the cat again, but Rude grabs him and pulls him down. So that means that Sting wins ring two. But Rude slams Steamboat into the railing and runs in, hitting the Rude Awakening on Sting. Now we're down to Luger versus Sting, and the crowd is really up for that. Luger grabs Sting as he gets into ring one and almost casually beats him up taking his time and really enjoying it. Race tells him that he should end it now, but Luger wants to have fun. He taunts Sting to get up and throws Sting over the middle rope to the ramp, where Race tries to join in, but Sting body slams him. Luger knocks Sting off the ramp to the railing, but Sting fights back and slams him into the railing multiple times. He rolls Luger back in and keeps control, getting Luger propped up on the turnbuckle for kicks. Race tries to interfere again, but he gets suplexed, but Luger dodges a stinger splash and Sting nearly goes out, teetering on the ropes before he falls back in. Luger signals for the end and throws Sting over the top rope, but Sting hangs on and falls back into the ring. He poses and yells, and it's rapid punches, breaking for an odd little dance, before a one-handed bulldog and a clothesline to knock Luger over the top rope. Luger tries to hang on, but Sting runs up and shoves him to the floor, winning the match. Yeah, this is very, uh, a lot. <laughs> My first note was long and confusing. Nobody seems clear on the rules, constantly fighting outside and not trying to get eliminations. Yeah. As I said, I think some of that is due to them, just their instincts taking over and trying to throw people to the outside, and then they realize it doesn't matter, just pretending like they did on purpose. I think some of that's definitely just also trying to get space. Like it's mentioned with Vader and Steamboat, I think they want space. There's a bit later where I think it's... Um, Dustin Rhodes and Arn Anderson on the outside. They brawl outside for a little yeah. bit, yeah. So they, they again, they did, I think they just want space. Yeah. Arn's like, let's get some room and let them sort this out, and we'll come back in a few minutes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the being thrown in the ring two thing is confusing because they're so close together. Some people try to go over both of them. Obviously, it doesn't work out super well for Mr. Hughes. He almost made it oh, over. Oh, yeah, poor guy. And to be fair, I don't think that's the easy thing to do. It's it's a needlessly complicated thing to do, which is why you have like Morton do it just rolling in afterwards. Even um, Vader, Vader's thing is he's clotheslined slash shoved over the rope, end up between them and sort of begrudgingly goes into the ring. I th- I think that is actually the rule though that as long as you're thrown over the top rope of ring one, it mm-hmm. does count. Oh no, it's I just get some it. of them, yeah. I, it's just funny from the idea that he's like, I'm not, I can, no way I'm going over both of these. Yeah. Like, oh, I guess I gotta go now. Yeah. There's two stories of the match. The latter part of the match, when it's down to five people, is actually pretty good. Essentially, the mini tag match, because you know yeah. we, we need more tag match in this show. Yeah. With uh, <laughs> Sting and Steamboat against Austin Rude is actually really good. 
I'm sure it's a tag match we get at some point on a Clash or another show, which I'm sure is worth watching. I like that they sort of, with as well as Austin and Rude were in the previous match, their teamwork's used against them and they actually get they're eliminated. Mm-hmm. I like because I'm glad they don't, don't sort of bury Steamboat, that he gets cheated out of his victory via Polly Dangerously and Rick Rude. And obviously the final part with Sting and uh, Luke is really good. I like that Sting does his little uh, dance to build up energy for that last punch. <laughs> that was great. You just got to build up kinetic energy for that extra punch, I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah. Don't you? <laughs> exactly. The final build with Sting and Luke is really good. They have really good timing, as you expect from their previous matching each other and working together to be friends. I like the sort of teases of the eliminations that Sting had where he's hanging on the side. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we thrown out, and he has his big celebratory taunt to get his vantage. Luger is good. The other side is the first, like third of the match, when it's twenty people in a small confined space. You can barely do anything, and the can't film it worth crap. No, we mostly get the one hard camera shot facing the right side of the ring. Everyone just in the in a big clump in the middle. So we could get had like a, I don't know, cut it in half. Yes. Have like a ten person. Battle Bowl, if, if you're stuck with these rules anyway, some reason, have less people and less filler and less, you know, less clutter, unless you can get to the good parts quicker. I'm surprised I didn't make in your commentary that um, there's a long, long section, which is not mentioned on commentary, but it's like in the front of the shot, where it's Bill Kazmaier and Abdullah um, Butcher in a bear hug, while Abdullah is just casually sitting on the second rope. I just... I. I think I totally blanked out on that and utterly ignored that that was even going on. But they're, yeah, they're in, a, they're in a sort of standing bear hug for like two minutes before they eliminated. I guess I, I just, I didn't need a bear hug on top of everything mm-hmm. else that was going on here, so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I, I get the premise. Yeah, I know your explanation, Bob, was, was very good. You explained it much better than <laughs> than they did. Yeah. At the time. I really like that Vader and the Steamboat kind of were, I thought they were playing smart rather than just playing, you know, to have their own spot. Just staying out on the ramp, you could probably just stay that forever until mm-hmm. there's no count outs, no, no, whatever. Yeah, true. But they also had action out there, so that was nice. There's a lot of just standing around the first, like, half. <laughs> it seemed to me more like cocktail hour at times because they were just, like, walking around and mingling. Like, mm-hmm. like yeah. yeah. The, like, like, even Sting was just like, yeah, you know, whatever. <laughs> He's just, you know, walking. <laughs> hey, Rick Rude, haven't seen you in a while. How's the kids? Yeah, yeah, that yeah, yeah. Thing. Even the, the part where um, the crowd suddenly gets excited because we see Sting and Luger fighting, it's almost a Where's Wallace situation. Because you look, you're like, okay, where are they cheering for? Oh, there they are yeah, in the middle of this yeah. group of people. Yeah, yeah no, but every in that moment, everyone is, is just going through motions, kind of. Mm-hmm. And, and they actually look like they're actually fighting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The only intensity on the screen was buried behind 15 or 16 bodies. Yep. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, that's where those extra camera angles could have been good. Yes. You know, I, I think, is this the first time they've done this sort of thing? I mean, battle royales are a fairly common thing in wrestling, so I can't imagine WCW hasn't... Ha- I mean, in fact, the Bunkhouse Stampede was a battle royale, so we know they've done some... But mm. the, I think this is the first actual Battle Bowl one. This is the first Battle Bowl, yes. Yeah. Okay. So I didn't think it was like the wrestlers not knowing what's going on, but, you know, it just seemed like there was a whole air of unfamiliarity mm-hmm. for all all involved. 
it's just too much to keep and keep track of to be perfectly honest they yeah. i, I would have liked to see a, a steady stream of people getting out of that first ring and i would have liked to see two tag matches i know that we've had plenty of tag matches but <laughs> I, would, I would like to have seen a four and four on each side or something close to that or even a two on one in the first ring and then four, yeah. on, four on the other and then that two more people come across and you have everyone's weakened at that point and have another nice little mini tag match but mm-hmm. all in all a good finish I, I do like the sting dance uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> and um when they had the initial reaction with sting and luger i was kind of like okay that's who it's going to be yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah the first portion of this match was utterly worthless there were far too many men in the ring for me to even hope to pay attention kept trying to build tension by risking being thrown out of sides that wouldn't eliminate them anyway. Once we started getting guys in ring two, it got easier to follow. You had fewer men in there at any one time, so they had the opportunity to put together some actual sequences rather than just brawling around the ring nonsensically. So no surprise that almost all of the entertaining bits of the match happened in ring two. Morton and Liger's duel was a nice bit. The best part of the match was probably Steamboat and Sting versus Austin and Rude. Yeah. I wish that that had been a lethal lottery matchup, as it clearly would have been awesome. Mm-hmm. The final bit with Sting versus Luger was good and had a hot crowd, and Luger played the sneering, arrogant villain role to the hilt. And Sting did a great job desperately fighting back with the last of his strength. So if you watch this, fast forward at least until Rich and Bagwell are both in ring two. Things start to actually happen then. Until then, Battle Bowl is a tremendous bore. I, I feel like Battle Bowl as a concept could work if you had one more rule. I know there's already plenty. Mm. If you had one more rule, this could work. And that's we do a quote-unquote random drawing to determine the entrance order for Ring 1. And we do that like the Royal Rumble. There you go. And then people still have the get into ring two, and then you can be actually eliminated. But you have a flow that way. You have a flow into ring one, and from ring one to ring two, and from ring two out, and then finally end up with the final two, and that's golden already. That was fine. Yeah. But the way they did it here is just like, until people start getting into ring two, it's so boring. Yeah. And I have no idea why they didn't just be like, okay, We've got three minutes of people just kind of brawling here. Okay, now let's get people into ring two and get this thing going. That's what they really should have been doing, I think. And it's just, they don't. So it's an, it's amazingly boring. Yeah. Hmm. It's It should be a spectacle, but it's not. It could even come in waves of five. Yeah. Five get over, and then they're fighting. And then, not, I mean, you can't do two on two. It's There's always a, another person... Yeah, no, exactly. And then you have the next five come down randomly. That could have been cool. Yeah, it's something where there's some kind of flow or where you, you just, you never have 20 people in the ring at the same time, all competing for your attention and all without room to actually doing any, anything of remote interest. Yeah. It's, oh, gal. The best summary for Battle Bowl is that shot of ring two where it's, the hard camera, and then two smaller picture-in-pictures showing people we can already see on the hard camera. Yes. <laughs> that sums up the problem with this match. Yeah. Pretty well. Good, John? I'm good. Um, okay. It's Ever- just something in my eye. I think oh. it was a tear. <laughs> 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 
everyone everyone want to join me in a deep sigh of despair for Battle Bowl. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it's a proper Norman. Yes. There we go. <laughs> so, obviously the point of this show is clear to promote the Sting and Luger match, which Sting is rewarded for winning Battle Bowl. Or for enduring Battle Bowl, as the case yes. may be. sure. But yeah, and just to be clear, there is no actual prize for Battle Bowl other than being declared the first Battle Bowl champion. Which they try to make sound prestigious. I could have for sure that it was like, oh, because he won, here's a title shot. But it was two separate things that happened, basically. Yeah. Well, I mean, because Luger's in Battle Bowl, so you can't have the title shot be uh, the reward for Battle Bowl. That'd be ridiculous. Exactly. Outside of those two, the slightly lower card feud is Rick Rude and Ricky Steamboat, as you can probably guess from the way their feud went. They would need to feud over the United States title, which Rude stole from Sting on his route taking up here. As for Vader, the other big person who survives until the, near the end, he working part-time between New Japan and WCW, he eventually decided, early 92, he's like, okay, I'm going to just... For some reason, he went through this match and decided, I want to stay here. <laughs> I don't know why, but he did. I guess they did cram a whole lot of people into the ring to let him beat them up, so, you know, yeah. there is that. But yeah, so he, he becomes a full-time WCW performer in the months following this show... So we'll see a lot more of him, thankfully. All right. Fireworks go off as Sting poses on the turnbuckle and gives Stinger calls. Harley Race tries to sneak up on him as he leaves, but Sting dares him to come. Tony recaps Sting's trials tonight, and JR builds up that Sting versus Luger for the world title is surely coming. Tony and JR wrap up and thank the other announcers and the guys in the truck. Credits roll, and Starcade 91 is done. Thank God. <laughs> Thoughts on Starcade 1991. It's a very repetitive show. I feel like there's enough highlights in like say match number 2 and match number 6 and so on and so forth to make it worth tracking down some parts of the show. But as a whole, it's uh yeah, it's not paced well, it's overly complicated and it's just too long. Mm-hmm. And the main event is overly confusing and eventually get somewhere good. But like the whole show, you really have to sort of wait, wade rather, through a lot of stuff you don't really care about to get to the good moments. I think there's enough here to enjoy separately, but not together. Mm-hmm. John? <laughs> I'm composing myself. Uh, okay. <laughs> There was a lot of drawn out matches here and there. Um, you know, thankfully there there wasn't a bear hugarama. Even though I I missed I totally missed the one in the battle bowl with uh, Abdullah. I'm just hanging out for two minutes. The only stalling that that was really present for me was the the first match. You know, it was just a very very slow start, and obviously the last match. Yeah, so yes. it was like another. They took the whole night. I mean, I guess that's the whole point. Uh, it was like watching the whole show again. <laughs> where <laughs> it started out, it started ah, like a yeah. mini show at the end. It's like a recap: um, who wins, and uh, it goes really slow uh, for the first half. There was a lot of great matches that I liked. Uh, a lot of new people for me. You know, some that I didn't mind, but you know, others might have. It's a worth watching, but I would not having seen it all. I think you need to fast forward some. 
mm-hmm. when when convenient, or or look find some good highlight reels. Maybe watch the matches that really stick out to you. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna come out and say it. Uh, for for me, this was a bad show. Fair enough. Getting this out of the way up front, we had ten tag matches in a row. That is too many tag matches. Period. Much less all in a row. A few did differentiate themselves. Zabisco and Elegante versus Morton and Rhodes. Steamboat and Champion versus Cactus Jack and Parker. Sting and Abdullah kind of versus Pillman and Eaton. The rest all felt pretty similar. Differences in style at times, but not in substance. And the ones that differentiated themselves were generally more angle than match. Now, some matches were okay. Some were even good. Many performances were fine, but... Is ten matches with quote unquote randomized tag teams, some of which work better together than others, and none of which put on a match that's of the level of quality that we've seen on prior shows. Few matches have much in the way of emotion or have any storyline beyond tonight. Some are fun to watch, but they all feel just flat. There's just not much to get into and no connection to make. There's no promos, none. It would have helped a lot to have some. Talk to the Freebirds about how it felt to be on opposite sides. The Steiners about how it felt teaming with other people. Get some sneering from Austin and Root about them getting to team up. Maybe have a veteran like Steamboat praise a new guy like Todd Champion after working with him. And above all, let Sting talk! (laughs) With everything he was going through, I really wanted to hear from him. It would have brought so much more energy to things. Yeah. Emphasize this storyline that they're trying to bring out on the show, but the announcers can only do so much. Yeah. It's a really weird sort of experimental Starcade, similar to when they did the Iron Man tournaments one in 89. Rather than being the culmination of storylines or any kind of major focus, it just feels almost inconsequential. It's a diversion, an interesting concept, but totally skippable. The only story development that seemed to matter was that Sting looked really strong, so he'd probably end up facing Luger. And let's face it, you really don't need Sting to win Battle Bowl to justify him facing Luger. He's Sting. That's justification enough. True. Mm. The announced team was actually pretty fun, at least, and Tony and JR often had some pretty insightful commentary, though Tony's attempts at humor tonight were a little bit off. He tried a few more biting comments and they tended to fall flat. I kind of wonder if someone told him to try and play heel and he just (laughs) wasn't really good at it. Very possible, yeah. Overall, though, the two worked really well together, and they did a good job of analyzing the night's weird structure and making things as clear as they could. So, this was a bad show, and it's one I really don't intend to revisit at any point. It's dull, it's lacking in story, it spends all its time building to a battle royale that just ends up being a confusing, over-gimmicked mess. On some shows, I could recommend, you know, oh, track down this match or track down this match as, you know, go out of your way to watch this. On this one, eh, not really. There's some that are decent, but there's nothing that I would be like, you have to see this. Mm -hmm. Let me try and put a mildly positive spin on this as a side part. Okay, so by my count, we had three matches that were won via crossbody, correct? I think so, yeah. Because we have the Liger Kazmaier. We have the Steamboat one, and we have Stings. Yeah. So among those, which was the best? Hmm. Yeah? I think the most interesting one is probably the Kazmaier one. Mm-hmm. Just because it's, it's a team spot, which sure. really focuses in on the tag match uh, concept that tonight's all about. Yeah. So, yeah, I would find that the most interesting. What about okay. you? 
I certainly see that side on that. For me, Steamboat's crossbody is still the best. It is beautiful. Yeah. But it's 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 nice. I'm trying to find a thing where three things are good on this show and you can compare <laughs> them. So I'm trying to be nice. John, you got a preference on crossbody moves? Ooh. It would be a tough decision between Steamboat and uh, Kazmaier. Um, I'm, I'm going to have to go with Steamboat. He's just, you know... I didn't see him enough in the match, but it was a nice finish. Yeah. All right. Uh, match of the night and MVP then. So I almost went with the Liger Kazmaier um, Graham DDP match, but my only issue was that there was some miscommunication there and it didn't quite live up to the level I was hoping. It was definitely better than I thought. I felt that Liger was slightly hampered by certain parts of the match. So for me, that took a away from that. So it may surprise you, the one I'm actually picking is the one I felt most did something with the Battle Bowl theme. Okay. And that is the Steamboat Champion versus Cactus Jack and Buddy Parker. Okay. On this show, it actually it built off the gimmick of this thing, had a full story throughout. Unlike the Sting one, which I didn't like as much, I thought the actual action in the handicap match was good. Mm-hmm. I thought Champion and Jack worked well together, I thought Jack and Team worked well together, and it built to this silly moment where they got thrown in the ring and pinned by Steamboat. It definitely unquestionably stands out a lot, so that's yeah. that's a really good thing, yeah. And in that regard, someone standing out and doing the most of the time they have, me and me P is actually Cactus Jack. Fair enough. I thought his performance in the match is actually good, his character work is really strong, and Adding to that, he did interfere in the Sting match quite well, built the angle they're going for with him and, and uh, Abdullah. And more importantly, he wasn't in Battle Bowl, so he's not happy by that. <laughs> Unvarnished. Okay. Uh, John, match of the night and MVP. Match of the night has to go to Kazmir and Thunderliger versus DDP and, and uh, Mike Graham. I was just so stoked about that match. (laughs) (laughs) Like I said, they look like mythical characters from my childhood watching anime and and everything. So I was, it was, it was good for me. Um, Of course, it's the first time of me seeing Thunder Liger. So that was awesome. And I had a a tough time choosing between this match and uh, Al's match of the night, just because I like Mick Foley and that's who I also choose for my MVP. Uh, he fought multiple matches throughout the night. You know, he it was a tie-in between two different things. Mm-hmm. He did go from one ring to the other. <laughs> yeah, really Just spanned out. And they, you know, the only storyline that was going on was with Abdullah, the butcher. I think it was, he was unhinged and I love his characters and I respect the man. So he's, again, uh, my MVP. Even though I love Sting and I love Lex and everything, but the most performance through multiple matches, Cactus Jack. Yeah. I can, I can definitely see that from, from Bully. It's like he has a, a very strong standout performance there and uh, and is, like you guys are saying, part of one of the very few actual story moments tonight. So that's a good choice. I had a really, really hard time picking a match of the night for this one. And it's not for the usual reason. For me, it was... I almost didn't want to because <laughs> I've wanted the match of the night to be something that really stood out or excited me. But looking at it purely as the match of the night, I can pick it as purely the best thing on this show. 
regardless of the level that I actually think it reached. Sure. So for me, that was Arn Anderson and Lex Luger versus Terry Taylor and the Z-Man. Okay. Had a nice enough match storyline, and I enjoyed seeing Luger fit into the Anderson tag work. Taylor looked good, and I felt like it built him up a bit without weakening Luger, which is a difficult balance. The match did what it needed to do, and it had some good spots in the mix, so I know that doesn't sound like a huge endorsement, but that's my match of the night. As for my MVP, Larry Zabisco. All right. (laughs) I had a feeling. (laughs) Yeah. He took the match with Elegante versus Morton and Rhodes, and he made it his own. He stood out. He used his big personality to give that match probably the most story a single match had tonight that was actually Mm -hmm. still really a match. True. Mm -hmm. He worked well with Rhodes in the ring, and he did everything he could to build anticipation. He acted so wonderfully aggravating and arrogant that I really wanted to see things go wrong for him, and the payoff, well, slightly mistimed, was pretty great. Zabisco's expressions were great, his frustration and anger palpable, and his what-have-I-done reaction after slapping Elegante was excellent. He made the best of this situation, and that earns him my MVP. <laughs> I do want to give a surprise of the night, though, as well for this one, and that's Bill Kazmaier skinning the cat. Yeah, what? Sure. I, I never yeah. expected to see that. That was amazing. I, was, uh, I thought you were going to give it to Buddy Lee, just because <laughs> <laughs> he just got the crap beat up all the time. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he deserves an honorable mention, I guess, too. He did his uh, best impersonation at the beginning of the Monty Python show. Yes. It's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to say I would throw um, a couple of quick sort of auto mentions to... I almost picked Luger originally. I liked mm-hmm. his overall show story, but when I really thought about Hatchet Jack, I thought he did the extra stuff in his limited space. I also really wanted to promote Vader. I almost picked him to a certain yeah. extent. Mm-hmm. That missed time splash aside, which I don't blame him for. I thought he really stood out in his part he had. He has a little part with Steamboat, and I thought he did really well in, in what he had to do. And obviously, Steamboat, uh, Mentor 4, that did really well in his limited role. Yeah. Yeah, there definitely are some good performances tonight. It's just, you like you were saying, you have to work for it. You have to actually like look through the show to find them. Yeah. It's it's a lot more work to to enjoy this one. Mm-hmm. There's a funny bit we didn't mention right before the final part of Battle Bowl, where it's after Root attacks Sting. If you catch it, listen again. Jr. clearly almost swears. He starts saying that what happened to Sting is a bunch of, and he quickly stops himself. And there's like a brief like ten second pause. Vine's like, yeah, it's a bunch of garbage, and he's like. It's just like agreeing with that afterwards. <laughs> yeah, it's always worth watching that part again if you catch that. It's hilarious. Nice. Oh, I didn't catch that. I did yeah. not catch that either. That's great. And that wraps up our review of Starcade 91 Battle Bowl, the Lethal Lottery. If you've enjoyed listening to us tonight, you can search for us on Twitter or Facebook as Let's Go to the Ring. Follow us for episode announcements and other show details, and share your own thoughts about the Starcades as we go through. And please, if you've enjoyed this show, give us a nice review on iTunes and share the show through your favorite social media platforms to help others discover us. Many thanks to OSW Review for attendance and pay-per-view figures. Join us next time for Starcade 92. Battle Bowl. The Lethal Lottery 2. (laughs) Again. (laughs) Yeah, they did this again. (laughs) Why?
you, you know, honestly, they were cutting to the crowd quite a bit, and they were pretty excited. So I, maybe it was something good. <laughs> I think it's called Stockholm Syndrome, John. Yeah. You had to be there, Bob. I will tell you that there are less tag matches on that show. Yes. Eight. <laughs> that is less than ten, so yes. Oh, my gosh. No, it's like, it's like six or seven, maybe at most. I forget the act number. All right. This is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgen and John Mullins signing off. Good night, everybody. Happy wrestling. Insert key phrase. <laughs> so that means that Sting ring that Sting. So that means that Sting wins re- ring to. Oh my gosh. It's not that late. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. It's a tongue twister. Yeah.